What's up, I'm Beyonce. Yeah, this is Big Snoop D-O-double-G. Hi, this is Kelly Clarkson. Stick around for more conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Here, brought to you by Ethel May Books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Alison J, The Journey to Here. I'm your host, Alison J. Today, I'm going to be having a conversation with my dear friend and sister, Warrens Wimberley. Warrens is a resident psychologist, a wife, a mother, an entrepreneurial businesswoman, and she is going to share her journey of coming to America and of loss because we are now talking about infertility and this is just another area of infertility going through the loss of a child and that entire process so Warren welcome to conversations with Alice and Jay thank you for joining us oh thank you for having me you are very welcome so Warren I know um, your journey your story but um, one of the things that I want to share is that journey of leaving your home and moving to another country, a new culture, a different language. And just, just so talk us through your journey from there and why you guys even came to America. And then we can just go through to the whole the, the, the part of the loss. Well, um, that's a good question. Why do we come to America? <laughs> um, anyways, my parents, you know, well, I'm from a third world country. Um, I'm originally from Haiti. And um, growing up back then, because I am an 80s baby. So back then, you know, America was, you know, the land of opportunity, the land where, you know, milk and honey is flowing freely. And yeah. Of course, um, my parents got, you know, sold that dream, that dream of, you know, coming. And um, they visited, you know, several different times. And it was, um, well, let me back up a little bit. You got to understand in Haiti, the social ranking is not divided the same way as it is in America. So um, for you to be able to afford a trip, like a summer vacation in the United States, you were, you know, kind of up there in social ranking. So um, although my parents has visited, you know, the United States several times and sent, you know, my older siblings here to, it was never my dad, you know, value. And because when you are outside of the United States, you get that idea. Yes, America is the land of opportunity, is the land where milk and honey is flowing freely. But you also hear that um, every New York perception of it is that every 17 year old person in America is on drugs. Every, you know, um, young people in America is watching pornography. So my parents were never agreeing, you know, okay, with we're coming here to leave. They're like, no, that's, that's not happening. You guys can go vacation and enjoy the thing. Um, bring back some, you know, um, uh, what do they call them? Lodge foot jeans and stuff like that to come to Haiti and show off, but y'all not going to go leave over there. Well, um, I believe it was in 1996, there was a coup that happened in Haiti, political instability as we had never seen before. Um, and my dad said, okay, it was, it became totally unsafe, you know, for us to stay there. So my dad um, said that he was going to phase, you know, our kind of, 
make our move, you know, in phases. So my family, us the sibling, we are divided like in two parts. Like there are the three older ones and then there are three, the smaller one, which I'm part of the three smaller ones. So my parents say that because the three older ones are already saved, not in the Christian sense of it, but saved in the sense that they already have their personality formed, they already have the values installed in them. That's a, you know, a Haitian expression that we have when you say a child is saved, meaning that they, they are they are okay. They can take care of themselves in the world. So he's going to send them first. So um, he sent them here. And, um, but along with that, they decided for whatever reason, my little sister, which is the, um, the youngest, youngest one, it would be a good idea to bring her here too, along with them, because she's not, you know, ingrained in the Haitian society yet. So that would be a good time for her to start, you know, learning stuff like that. So they came. And, you know, of course, you know, me and my sister, we stayed in Haiti and, you know, kind of doing our thing. Okay, our parents are away now, you know, let's do, but we were teenagers. So they too, they didn't leave us by ourselves. We go and live in a, what they call a convent, um, where they have nuns and stuff. Okay. So they put us in the convent so we can be looked after and stuff like that. So after, it was to be like, after we graduate from high school, we are, you know, coming over. But of course, the political climate of Haiti goes up and down and then up and then really down again and stuff. So when we finished high school, we couldn't, you know, come because, you know, they weren't issuing any visas or anything like that. There was no way for us to come. So I studied college in Haiti by the time my older sister was, you know, working. So she was taking care of us. And I studied college. And of course, with college, I mean, I'm independent now. I don't care about coming to now, right? I don't want to come to America. Um, I had my first boyfriend. I'm like, all right, now and stuff. So when it came to me coming, as a matter of fact, it was on a Tuesday. And my sister say, on Friday, you're going to um, for Lauderdale. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you are going. I'm like, no. She's like, I'm telling you, you are going. So that thing become a big thing. I got so upset. I'm like, I don't have no time to say bye to my friends. I don't care to go and stuff. And so long story short, here I am. So, but for me to show that I was mad and I didn't want to come, they told me to pack up my bag and I didn't pack nothing, but I had a library um, uh, of, you know, romantic novels. I filled my suitcase with the library of romantic novels and came in and not in one underwear. <laughs> so that was my little way of expressing my, you know, that I'm being oppressed, that I'm being forced to do something that I don't want to do. Romance novels. <laughs> so we came and I was in my third year of college. Um, I was a, what do you call that? A fresh, no, not a freshman, a sophomore, uh, junior. I was a junior in, in college. So I came to find out that, of course, my degree and everything that I have learned over there doesn't count. So I am back to the high school graduate point, which, you know, added to my anger. So when I came and I find out that my situation, I am now uh, just a high school graduate and not even that, I still have to have my high school diplomas and um, transcript um, uh, translated. So I got very upset and I spent a year sitting on the couch and don't want to do anything, telling people that I'm not learning English. I don't care to learn English and I I just want to go back home. So I spent you spent one year. How old were you? I was twenty-one. 
Yep, I was 21, sitting one year, laying on the couch, don't want to do nothing. My parents, every time they're going out to go to the doctor or something, wherever they're going, they're like, you want to come? I'm like, nope, I'm good. And I'm watching all the judge, um, daytime TV, Judge Judy or whatnot. All rise. I know that thing by heart. <laughs> That's all I wanted to do. But little did I know that by being mad, angry, and sitting on the couch watching TV all day, I was learning English without me knowing it. Hold on. So the very English that you refused to learn because you were protesting that you were dragged away from your home to America, you asked That's hilarious. It is, it is, because what my little sister did, because my little sister that had came here um, so much earlier than us, she was, you know, already, of course, um, Americanized, as we call it, from the Caribbean, and she said, tell me, okay, I know you don't understand what exactly is happening, but if I put the subtitle for you, you will be able to kind of read along, because in Haiti, we do English, we do take English classes, it's not an elective, in Haiti, there's no elective in high school, you have to do those classes, it's just part of the right. curriculum period, you do English, you do Spanish, you do, you know, of course, French, and stuff like that, so we, I could kind of read English, not knowing what I'm reading, but I could, yeah. I know how to pronounce English more or less. No, no really big comprehension besides asking, you know, I'm hungry, I want to go to sleep, the very basic conversation. But the essentials, I'm hungry. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, especially for me. So that's what it was. My little sister put the, you know, subtitle and say, okay, maybe with the subtitle, you'll be able to, um, to understand more or less what's going on. And while I'm sitting, you know, on the couch and my dad even, you know, um, enrolled me in a English ESOL class, you know, that they were giving some in a mall that was walking distance from my house to say, at least that you can walk to there, you know, make it the thing that you do in the morning, you go walk to there and go take the classes. I'm like, okay. So he dropped me off, introduced me to the teacher and and stuff and I'm like okay so I went two or three times and then every time he dropped me off I just go to the mall and walk around until it's time for him to pick me up and then I come and stand in front of the um, class and say okay we're done now <laughs> so Yep. So never going to the classroom and, but they see that I was learning English. You know what I'm saying? I was speaking more and more English, uh -huh. so, but every allowance that I had, because when I first came, of course, I wasn't working or anything like that. So my parents used to give me allowance. Every allowance I got was spent on buying phone cards. Back then there was phone cards, buying phone cards to call my friends back home. And I write, you know, long letters, spend my whole time writing long letters, telling them about everything that's happening in my day, how's everything goes and stuff like that. And that's all I would spend the whole first year of being here doing, yeah. wasting time. <laughs> so, so what changed for you after that first year? What changed? Well, it's, it's the drive in me. Like, this is not me. This was a protest. But personally, I am a very driven person, and I hate wasting time, and I'm very ambitious. So after I got over the fact that, you know, my, you know, we started going out and you started learning all of the things that you can do here, all of the things that you can be here. So um, that has this good and it's bad thing to be because become, be coming from a third world country and you are in the United States where you can pretty much be anything you want to be. So 
I'm like, oh my gosh, so many options, you know, let's find out what I want to be, you know, let's find out what I'm going to do. So I enroll in, you know, um, medical classes, you know, to try to, I'm like, no, even though that's not anything that I ever want to be, I've never, even when I was a little girl, say I want to be a doctor, I never do. That's not my thing. So um, I enrolled in medical classes, studied the medical classes, aced them, but when I went to do my, you know, um, like the clinical part of it, the, you know, internship, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't want to see people sick every single day of my life. Like every time <laughs> I want to go to work, I go to work with sick people. I'm like, no, that's not what I want to do. Well, there's another year down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I ended up, um, I tried to do security thing, like being a security officer. I'm like, um, no. <laughs> so that took me like about three years because I actually worked on that one, you know, and I tried different things like until I stumbled upon accounting, you know, and I started accounting because I was, you know, in college, I took some accounting classes, I did well. So when I came here and learning the principle of accounting, the concept were the same. It's just that you're learning them in another language. Nice. So I did very well in them. Because of that, you know, I started getting offers for accounting jobs, which I started, you know, I was doing well until now I work in a financial, you know, concept, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm administering finances, but I find out that's not what I want to do. That's not where my passion, my life passion is. So here I am being a psychologist resident. And that is so true of so many people, though. There's a lot of people, and I, you know, put my hand up, I am one of those people, that what I studied is not what I ended up doing for a living. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be so many things. I wanted, one of the first, my first memories of what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a chef. Wow. Yeah, I wanted to be a chef because at the, I started cooking when I was eight. And I believe like cooking. I, I still do. I still do. I absolutely love to cook. And um and it was one of those things where my mum, you know, you know what it's like coming from the um the Caribbean, your parents get you in the kitchen early. And I enjoyed it. And I was eight when that started. But then my mum kind of put me off by saying, Okay, you want to be a chef every day you're cooking dinner. And I thought, yeah, but I don't want to do it every day. So, well, that's what a chef does. They're in the kitchen all day, every day. All day. I thought, okay, well, maybe no, I'm not going to be a chef. Then the next thing I wanted to do, I wanted to be a teacher. So then I took classes to be a teacher. And I remember I had, um, uh, I, was on a, I went on a couple of placements. And I thought to myself, yeah, no, I can't do this. This, this was... <laughs> This was, um, I don't know what they call it over in here in the US, but they were like nursery age. So they weren't even four years old yet. Is that what they call kindergarten over here? Yeah, preschoolers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so they were that age. And, um, <laughs> and you know, there's a, I remember a funny story of this little boy that I can't even share. But, um, but he went to the bathroom and he wanted me to take care of him after he had done his business. And I'm thinking, oh, oh no, oh, no. No, 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 no. Child, I don't know you like that. <laughs> yeah, some of the job you have to, some of the profession that you think you want to do, you have yeah. to actually be in it for a little while to figure out that well, that's not what I want to do. And the thing is, poor little thing, he was so adorable. He had a twin sister in there with him. So I called his twin sister. Now imagine, these are three-year-old children. I called his twin sister like, 
His, his name was Lewis and his twin sister's name was Michelle. I'm like, Michelle, come and help me with your brother. <laughs> and that made me realize, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. But I didn't want to actually do that age. My, I actually wanted to do high school. But then oh. I thought to myself, I know what I was like in high school. Oh, no. That's quite a challenge. And I wasn't one of the worst. But I, know I, was, I was enough. I was enough in high school. It's like, yeah, no. So then I thought I wanted to be an accountant. And then, but you know what it's like, and God love all the accountants out there. Back in the day, it was, accountants were seen as very boring. And I was so not that person. Because I'd be, the, I'm the one that goes into the office when, when it's too quiet. I'm like, somebody entertain me. <laughs> not quite an accountant's personality. Yeah. So, so I know what you're saying when you say that um, you did that and you realize that's not me so many people i find are working in a profession that is not their calling and their passion it, it does it does because i mean you get trapped sometime because you may be in a job you know because that's you've been in it so long you're doing it you gain the experience and now you have you know marketable skills you have great skills that people want you to have and they you know they start offering you one offer after another and you're like yeah i may as well since i'm already doing it i may as well and then before you know it 10 years of your life is you know gone doing something that you don't enjoy at all you don't doing it either for the money or because you just don't have the energy to start over again or you don't want to change or something is happening with the economy this is not a good time for you to do a career move all kind of stuff can be happening and then before you know it you wake up 20 years has passed another 10 years has passed because you're busy doing other things in your life so things times is going by you because time doesn't wait for no one and then you're like oh my gosh I spent a 60 year career doing an accounting when I wanted to be a doctor. You know what I'm saying? And things happening in your life because during that time, life is happening. You, you, um, you get married, have a family or not. Some people don't get married or have a family, but, but there's still other things going on in life that contributes to you staying there. So then you realize you didn't want to be an accountant. They went on to now. So now you are a resident psychologist. So actually the psychology came. Like, could it be any more different, like psychologist? Oh yeah. Very, very different. Very different feel. Because I've always been, because I always tell myself, if I didn't get distracted, I would have been a lawyer. That ultimately, you know what I'm saying? I would have been a lawyer because of the depth you go into and the, intricacies of the cases that you have to you know the dilemmas that you face every day so and that's what you know attracting in psychology psychology you cannot tell one you know we are such a complex organism that it never is one thing it never is one thing it's always a mixture of things put together and when you are analyzing somebody or diagnosing somebody it's just you have to, you know, do it in a holistic way because it has to do with every part of that person, environment, biological, cultural, you know, social, you know, um, psychology. It, it's just, it's everything together. And that's, that's very interesting. Wow. And, and being, being a coach and a stress management therapist, trust me, I, I, um, I can, I know what that's like when you're dealing with people and, and the joy that you get 
from helping them. And, and it's not, and, and I want to emphasize that as a psychologist and as a coach and a therapist, that help is not you telling them what to do. It's you helping them to realize within them and they will work it through. And that's the beauty and the joy of that. So now we know about the professional side of Warren's. So after that year, you, 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 you picked yourself up, you snapped yourself out of it and says, okay, this is ridiculous, what am I doing? Let me get my behind into it. So you started to work and so on. So on a personal level, what was happening there? On a personal level, it was kind of hard because people don't understand the psychological ramification that there is when you leave your home country and come to another country. People don't give it a second thought because it happens so often. I mean, every day we have millions of immigrants coming to the United States, going out of the United States or, you know, whatever, a traffic, you know, back and forth. But the psychological, you know, ramification are huge because um, you are unrooted from everything you have ever known in your life. And I was one of the blessed ones because when I came here, my family was here. Some people come here and they don't know a soul. Mm -hmm. They just have to make their way in the dark, you know? And still I had to deal with, because before I came to the United States, I come from a nation where we do have, you know, um, disparities in our skin colors, but we don't, it's not something that you emphasize every day. I did not know that I was black, African-American, not from Hispanic descent. I did not know that's how I was. You know, when I'm filling out papers here, I was at a loss, you know, every time. I'm like, I had to remember. I'm like, okay, what do we, um, we have to check again. We have to check something because I just know that I'm a Haitian. What are you asking me? What I'm, where, who my grandmother was? Who cares? You know? So I'm from the Caribbean. That's all you need to know. But here you have to say exactly not. it's not enough that you are black, but you are black, not from Hispanic descent. And I don't even, until now, I've been living in this country for 20 plus years now. I still don't know why does that matter? You know what I'm saying? I just don't know why does that matter? Mm -hmm. But it was, it was shocking. It was shocking. And with that come, with the intimidation of being in a place where you are talking to people, they are listening to your accent, but they are not listening to what you are saying. So you are talking to them and they like, oh, wow, after 30 minutes of explaining whatever it is topic that you are talking on, and the person is like, wow, wow, your accent, where is that from? Like, really? After 30 minutes of me talking, that's what your following question is? Did you hear anything I've said? <laughs> I know that only too well, <laughs> only too well, because um, when I came over here, I came over here and I went straight into a job. Well, I had a job. Basically, I came over here. I already had the job and I came over. And there was many... I now know that there's a lot of people that have never heard an English person speak and they've never met one. So, like you said, I would have conversations with people and then after going through... And I'm there just meticulously going through this work and all of this. Make your best. <laughs> So, so where's your accent from? Is it, uh, is it like Australian or South African? Honestly, I'm like Australian, South African, like, yeah. And so there's this, are you from one of the islands? No. And in my head, I'm thinking, um, hi, let's get back to this. Hi, hello. 
the, the reason that we're here, we can do all of that after. Or maybe we should have done it before. <laughs> exactly. Let's get that out of the way. If anybody have any accent, you know, question for me before we start, you know, talking about the real topic. Yeah. And yeah. some people are just blatantly rude to, you know, strangers or to foreigners. You know, they will tell you, you know, why are you looking at me like that? You didn't understand what I was saying. Are you dumb or something? Are you slow? Or you're like, really? Really? Yes, I, I know. Yeah, I know that feeling as well. And it's quite funny because, and I thought it was hilarious because I'm English and some people have spoken to me like English is not my first language. And they've spoken to me and they're like, okay, are you? It's like, um, hi, I'm English. Me. Ah. The English. Honestly, or, or people say, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm like, um, but I am speaking English. <laughs> How can you not understand what I'm saying? Exactly. And your accent looks like, um, your accent's so thick. I hope it is. I'm English. That's I correct. It is. And so you're, and it's so funny because you don't have to have English as a second language for people to treat you like you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. I have experienced it. And I just thought, hold on a second. But I'm speaking English, <laughs> like the real, proper, authentic and, and thing. That tells you, that tells you. And when somebody act like that, I don't, you know, well, I do have that going on for me when people try to insult me first, because I'm not from here. There's a lot of um, mocking nuances that goes right over my head because it's totally American and I don't get it. So okay. that keeps me from being offended. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I don't get offended even when I do understand it because I understand that you are speaking of, um, from a place of frustration, you know, because you don't know. Your ignorance makes you frustrated because you don't know that you are the one who's speaking from another nation. You come from England and speaking from another nation. So don't get upset with an English person because they had it first. <laughs> but exactly. Just, exactly. They, don't, they don't get it. They don't, they don't get it. And um, at first it used to frustrate me, but then I got to the stage of like, you know something, it is what it is. You're, you're going to have, and those people, I must admit, are the minority. And I'm not exactly. going to let the minority suffer. You know, I'm not going to let the majority suffer for the minority. So correct, you know, correct. It's like, okay, I'll get, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get past this, we'll get over it. So, so it's interesting that you should mention that. So, um, so on a personal level, what else was happening for you? Well, um, there was, because I came here and I was in my early 20s, so there was my, you know, that side of me, my identity slash my personality was still, you know, being formed. And um, let's just say when I turned 30, I was very glad that I'm not 20, I'm in my 20s anymore. And people were like, oh my God, my sister, my older sister, she's older than me by only one year. So whenever she experienced an age, the next year I'm about to experience it. So she called me when she turned 30. She's like, oh my gosh, I can only have 30 years old and stuff. And the next year when I, call, when I turned 30, I call her and I'm like, yes, I am 30 years old. She's like, why are we so happy about that? I'm like, girl, I'm done being twenty. I'm done with my twenties. I'm done being stupid. You know? <laughs> I look like your sister when I hit thirty. I'm like, I'm going up for my twenties. I'm trying to hold to my twenties. So, yeah. mm -mm. I did not like my 20s because I was new at everything. I was so naive because coming here to this country, I did not know there was that much of a range of men, you know, that could 
lie to you in so many ways, yeah. you know? And so I was very happy. I was very happy to be done. And I met my husband in my, you know, I think the year I turned 30. So that was wonderful. So I was, I was very happy about that. I'm like, I call my friend in Haiti because we used to have this deep conversation and I told her that, you know, now I entered the phase of my life where I don't need to say yes when I'm thinking no. Like, I don't need to, you know, sit down when inside of my head I'm standing up screaming. So I'm 30 now and I'm happy about it. So. Okay. So you met your husband. Okay. Yes. So what happened to this boyfriend back in Haiti? It was just like, oh, that was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's another, um, that's another podcast for this. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So you met your husband and, and then what happened then? Oh, I met my husband. Seven months later, we were married. So, <laughs> okay, so hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. So you, you all were wasting no time. No time. I mean, I'm seriously, day for day, we met, we went on our first date on April 2nd. And, and we went on our first date a week after we met. Okay, so we went on our first date on April 2nd. On November 2nd of that same year, we were married. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay okay so then marriage and then what after that what marriage come um we had a little bit of problem you know conceiving our first child um so but i think a year and a half afterwards he came on because we wanted to because you know i was 30 and you know we we say we were not gonna waste time you know we're just gonna have kids and you know so we can see them getting married and and be there you know and not being too old to walk them down the aisle yeah. so we wanted to have children right away um so a year and a half after my first son was born and you know the joy of our life make us make me parent um so we were very happy, you know, to have him. And I, my desire was to have another child right after that because I say I'm going to have two. I don't care what two they are, two boys, two girls, a boy and a girl. I'm just having two and be done. So I wanted to have a child right afterwards and say for them to grow up together, I'll take the pain of them being small together. And once they are grown, they all grown together and be done with it. But that wasn't God's plan. So take what you were saying about, because that's one of the things I want to focus on. Um, you said that you were initially having difficulties conceiving. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, what happened there? Was it something that you sought medical help for? Or was it just a case of you guys were just actively trying and nothing was happening? We were actively trying. Um, trying we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were still newlywed, so I can imagine there was a lot of trying going on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we were trying for real and nothing was happening. Um, turns out we have, I had a hormonal problem. I had PCOS. I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome. That's okay. where PCOS is. Mm -hmm. so how did you diagnose with that? Was it, so, because I'm, I'm, a lot of the times that people, women go through things, like for example, in my um, case, when I had the first two miscarriages, I didn't know what the issue was. And then I went and sought medical help. And there's a lot of women that have issues conceiving. But so, uh, so did you get diagnosis as a result of having issues conceiving or did you know that before? 
yes, I had that as a result because we were trying and nothing was happening. So I went to my gynecologist and say, what is happening? What, 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 what's going on? He's like, I think I already know what's going on, but I'm going to make you go through the test anyway. So to make sure. So we went through a battery of tests. Wow. And um, afterward, he say, you know, that the test confirmed that that's what you have. It's because. And I'm like, so why did you tell me you had already know before the test? Is it like, he's like, because when you came, I could see your neck, the, the color of your neck was so much darker than the rest of your body. He's like, that's a sure sign of PCOS. So I'm like, okay. So he find out that I was producing more male hormones than female hormones. So we had to correct that. And then... Um, and how yeah. did he correct that? So it's polycystic ovary syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so what did they do to correct that? To allow- in my case, because it was, you know, hormonal in my case, so they had, uh, well, they wanted to give me some hormone therapy, which I did not want to take because I never, prior to that, I had never put any, you know, foreign thing that was not naturally occurring in my body. So I did not want to do that. So we corrected that with the way I was eating. We changed my diet. Interesting. So... So your your hormone your hormonal imbalance can be changed. Well, in your case, was changed just by your diet. No medication. No medication. Wow. I, I wish more people would actually know that thing. Yeah. Because they say there's you know different way they can correct that is that they can make you go through hormone hormone therapy or you can go you know through birth control because usually when you're on birth control it regulates your hormone, make it balanced the way it's supposed to be. But the birth control is contradicting the purpose for which you are correcting your hormones so that's not it so you know and I have to say a lot of prayers because you know God is the number one thing the person that really corrected it was God who say that I know I created you a female and reproduce you shall right so okay so then so you went through you had the you couldn't conceive you went through the diagnosis you went through the treatment and then is when you had Deuce. Mm-hmm. I had David the uh, second, whom we call Deuce. Um, so he's a joy in our lives. He came in, you know, all wrinkled and <laughs> light skinned like his dad, you know, <laughs> transparent. But um, I had a moment when, when I never forget the, the time when he came out and they put him on me, all, you know, bloody and, and murky. What do they call that? Mucus covered in mucus and yeah. stuff. And I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I had a moment where I didn't even realize that was happening because everything around me, you know, in a hospital room when you are giving birth, there's so much happening around you, yeah. nurses and the doctor himself and the people calling out time and the people calling out instruments that are being used and stuff. But within that chaos, I just stopped and I was staring at him and I can never forget what came out of my mind is like, this came out of me. This was inside of me that whole time. Wow. And people were, you know, when they put him on you, I mean, usually when they put the baby on the mother, the mother's like, oh my gosh. And I was like that. I was like staring. And my husband had to tell me, you don't want to hug him? I'm like, oh yeah. And, and because it was just so, you know, he, well, of course he's a man. He's poor thing. Never going to know what that feels like. But it's, it's just like, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, this 
this little thing was inside of me the whole time. So yeah, and you don't even think about it the whole time that you were pregnant. I'm like, hey, I'm pregnant, okay, I'm pregnant. But actually seeing the baby, you're like, this is a baby, and it was inside of me. You know what I'm saying? So it's 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 quite something. But you know, that was the effect, I guess, on being a first time mom. So you like, okay, and with with that come, you know, all the first times, you know, changing diapers and the late nights and stuff like that. So. You are embarked on the train for which um, I haven't slept since then. And how many years ago was that you haven't slept? <laughs> He's 11 now. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you wanted to have a second child straight after. What happened? I wanted to have a second child straight after because um, I wanted them to grow up together. And when I'm done ra um, having children so I can focus just on raising them. But this is not the way it worked out. The, I guess the PCOS thing or whatever it was, I don't know. But um, we tried for seven years. I mean, seven years. Never have no sort of... Um, prevention, no sort of abstinence, no method of abstinence at all. We tried for seven years to have a child. And did he go back to the doctor? Because he was um, diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome the first time, did you ever go back to the doctor or did he did you stay on that diet of regulating your did. I sure did go back and I'm like, okay, I mean, is it the same thing or whatever? And the doctor told me after he had made me go through the test, um, not the same doctor now, but another one. He told me, wow, he was, he had my test result in his hand looking at them. He's like, wow, I don't know how you don't have mustache covering your whole mouth. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? A doctor, a medical practitioner. The gynecologist. Which people were, were raving about. That's why I went to him. See, I don't understand why you don't have mustache covering your whole mouth. I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, because your body produces so much male hormone that it's like your body doesn't know that you are a female. I'm like, well, God knows that I'm a female. He's like, I don't even understand. You say you have a child? I'm like, yeah, I do. No, He's he like, didn't. I don't even understand how that happened. No, he didn't say, no, he yeah. didn't. No. He said, you have a child? I don't even understand how that happened. I'm like, well, God knows. And that's why I kept telling him. I'm like, God knows how that happened. And you see, that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the, to me, that is the thing. The lack of sensitivity in the language that doctors use, it gets me so, ah, because, and I'm just looking at it. Can I just ask you, was this doctor a black man? Unfortunately. Wow. And, and it's funny. And the reason, the reason that I ask you is that because um, you hear all these studies in the disparity of treatment that black people receive. So you look at it and then you think, okay, so if I go to a black doctor, I'm going to get better treatment. But that's not even always the case, is it? Exactly. A black man is telling, you know, and, and the thing I'm thinking to myself, is, I'm just thinking to myself, when I go to the doctor, like I, I've, I've gone through some serious health issues in my time and I'm thinking to myself, but surely you've seen worse than this. So therefore he should know how to be that 
person that to be very diplomatic and comforting when he's giving you your test results rather than saying i don't know how your whole face is covered with a mustache and you, you you've got a child i don't know how that happened when you have a son yeah i think i don't know and i'm not even being and i'm not even gonna pretend to know how you know um a medical curriculum is you know constructed but i think they should make that part of their um what do they call it residency to make them take the place of the patient yeah. like don't yeah. go in as the doctor only at, you know at some point the residency need to flip you are the patient now and we're going to treat you as a patient and for you to feel because empathy you can you know i'm assuming that they teach them a class of empathy in their curriculum at some point if it's not an elective um, but <laughs> but making you go through something um i would say that do them like a placebo thing say that this is what you just diagnosed and take their blood and fake them with the news that you have a terminal disease or something you know very at all um yeah, serious a serious case and then tell them okay this is what we're gonna treat you for and treat them you know give them sometimes good treatment sometimes bad treatment for them to see the difference what because treatment alone as a um, as a resident psychologist i can tell you that the mental state of a patient is directly affecting the treatment that they are receiving in their body you know because it's psychosomatic you know it's you know your mind is telling your body what to how to react to certain things so mm -hmm. their mental health i mean their mental health contribute a lot to their physical being i i, I fully fully agree with that because i remember when i was taking my first stress when i was studying to do um stress management therapy um i, I was given the curriculum and I was going through it and it was, I found it really hard because it was, and I remember my um, first husband was saying, are you sure that they, they've given you the right modules? Because this, because he's a personal trainer. So he's saying, because this looks like physiology and anatomy. And I was like, yeah, but all the papers say stress management, so it's got to be. And so I went through the first three modules of that. And then four, five, modules four, five, and six, was explaining the reason they gave you that was because it was showing you, <clears throat> excuse me, the effects that stress has on the body. So as you're saying that, if, if you're completely stressed out about something, stress in itself is having one effect on your body. <clears throat> excuse me. So therefore, if you're receiving treatment for something, Absolutely. it's like counterproductive because you're so stressed yeah. out, it's blocking you from getting that treatment. Mm -hmm. It actually is coming from how the doctors are even delivering the news. Because I remember for my own case, um, I saw for years, I was seeing um, gynecologists from about the age of 12 when my menstrual cycle first started because it was ridiculous. And they were basically to the point where they, um, I remember once I was hospitalized as a result and oh. they thought I was having a miscarriage. And I was like, no, because I'm not the Virgin Mary number two. I, I've been doing nothing <laughs> to be, you know, in the stage of that I should, should possibly even be pregnant. And they're just like, well, they're trying to find an explanation for why I was, the, the, my flow was like that. And I'm looking at them like, this, it's, that's normal every month. 
just just constantly and the way so then they i went to doctor after doctor after doctor i was a bit like that woman in the bible with the issue of blood no seriously but mine went on for much longer than 12 years though because it was from the age of 12 it didn't that get diagnosed till i was in my 40s oh wow yes till i was in my 40s i didn't know what was wrong with me because they were just looking for fibroids because they were just trying to say that the reason that your flow is like that and the reason that um, it's because there were times I was in relationships, I was taking no precautions and still not getting pregnant. And, so, so, and they're saying that and because it was so painful, they said it was like I was in labor every month. My cycle was the equivalent of being in labor every wow. month and having a miscarriage every month. It was like that. So I, I, went to, um, I went to these top private doctors and there's a place in London called Harley Street. And that's where you've got all those. That's where like all the celebrities go and see their doctor. Like you pay big money to go. Yeah. And I remember I, everything, I, literally like that woman with the issue of blood, everything I had to pay for this doctor. And um, <clears throat> they, were, they were doing these tests looking for fibroids. And they just kept saying, we can't find anything wrong with you. We can't figure it out. And it's left me, literally just would leave me. And so I go to another doctor because I'm thinking something is wrong. Something is wrong. This can't be normal because I don't know anybody else that has this. And they're like, okay, it's not fibroids. It's not endometriosis. So there must be something else. And it wasn't until I was, I think I was about 43 when a friend of mine said demand a laparoscopy I didn't even know what it was so I had to google it right I didn't even know how to spell it so you know I went and googled it and thank god that google corrects the spelling for you right so, did you mean so I I um I googled it and I'm like okay so I went to my uh, my guy my gynecologist and he says well why do you want that I'm thinking well first of all I've been coming to you time and time again with this issue. You know that this issue has hospitalized me several times. Mm -hmm. So the fact that somebody told me to demand it and you didn't suggest it, I should be the one really asking you questions. And so when, so then I said, because I'm tired of this thing putting me in a hospital, that I would just want some answers to know what's wrong. So he was like reluctant. But then I was thinking, hold on a second. It's not free. I have insurance. I'm paying for this bad boy. I'm paying for it and it's my body that's going to go through it. So right. what's your beef? So I'm just like, dude, chill. So they went through it. And that's when it, I was diagnosed with a condition called adenomyosis. Never heard of it before. And he gave me a brief overview again thank god for google so you can look up everything and um gave me a brief explanation as to what it was but the majority of information i found out about it i found out on my own and the last day i saw that particular doctor was when he was telling me it's a condition called adenomyosis and i'm thinking to myself so aren't you actually going to apologize to me the fact that you didn't recommend me getting a laparoscopy and there, so there now is something quite chronically wrong that, that i've been living and suffering with for most of my life at this point and um 
So then the only thing he said to me is, you have two options. So I'm like, I have options. Yes, yes, I have options. He says, my two options are either have a hysterectomy or learn to live with it. I didn't, I've never seen him again since. Never seen him again. And I just thought to myself, this, and, and by this point, I've only been married um, two years and we wanted to have children. So you know a hysterectomy was not going to exactly. be And learning to live with it. Dude, I've been living with this thing since I was 12. So I think I pretty managed being learning to live with it, but it was causing other health issues to, to the point where I had to, I've had to have more than one blood transfusion as a result. Wow. Yes, as a result of it. Because I remember going to the hospital and them saying to me, um, we've only ever seen those numbers in a textbook by writing to the unconscious hooked up to four different machines about to go into organ failure. But the way that that gynecologist spoke to me, I just thought, I, 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 I don't need that because this, exactly, absorb this and take this in. Like, what are you saying to me? And then that was why they, um, the, I had that obviously the first because I, it was after that that I had the second two miscarriages, the last two miscarriages. But that's why I couldn't get pregnant mm -hmm. because my uterus. Because they, they say that your uterus is supposed to be a firm muscle. Mine was just completely enlarged and engorged. Oh, wow. And it wasn't until I went to another gynecologist, a very lovely man from Jamaica, um, practicing in Florida. And I went to him. So he, and he was so nice. And his, 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 just the way he treated you, it's like with empathy and care and just so soft-spoken and gentle. And um, so then he did some other tests on measuring my uterus to see really what's going on. And I remember, so he gave me the numbers. So I wrote it down. I'm like, oh, okay. And it's like, I just heard, Alison, you twit. Ask him what a normal uterus, the normal measurements are. Because you're taking these measurements and don't know, you know. It's like, oh, okay, thank you. Comparing them too. Right? And so I asked him what the normal ones were. And all three, all, because it's like they measure three points. And all three points of mine compared to a normal one were three times larger. Wow. Three times larger. And I'm thinking to myself, that first gynecologist that I was seeing, and all the ones all those years ago back in the UK, the first one when I I when I think I saw two or three gynecologists when I in my first three years of moving here to the US, because I'm just like the way they were treating me and handling that, no, 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 no. It's not until I went to this last one and he was so patient with me and just took me through. And um told me that it's, you know, to, and by the time I saw him, I'd already gone through that those second two, the second and third miscarriage. And it was just like, okay, that explains everything because my uterus cannot hold. I um, would not be able to hold. So, well, basically, baby. Yeah, yeah. so basically if I got pregnant, I would actually be putting my life and the life of the baby in danger. Because of care, wow. I just thought to myself, you know something, 
So that's so it's after I was sent to the hospital to have a second blood transfusion because my cycle, my flow was that heavy. But I just thought, you know something, I'm just going to make the decision and I'm going to have the hysterectomy. But before that, I tried all kinds of, I tried acupuncture, changing my eating. Listen, I tried so many things and it was literally because the attitude of that doctor that did the laparoscopy and how he spoke to me. I don't know if because of how he spoke to me and me being me, like, nope, I'm not accepting that. I'm going to find a way because I'm that person that I firmly believe, look, there's a way around everything. You just have to find it. <laughs> so, so I understand what you're saying. So when you said that, he says about your hair, your face covered in hair and this thing, I just think to myself, what is wrong with these people that you are entrusting your life and your care to? That they just can't take a moment. Just take a moment. They don't understand. For them, you are just another chart. Wow. That's, that's, so, so after he told you all of that, what happened next? Well, they, um, his option to us was that we go through fertility doctors and whatnot and um, wanted to bring my husband up and, you know, to see if he's not the problem. I'm like, he's not because not only he had a child before me, he has a child with me. And now what are we talking about, you know? So of course he wanted me to go to, um, he suggested the fertility route, you know, and um, which I had considered for a while, um, but finding out that my insurance does not cover that, like you will have to come out of pocket. Mm. That was it for me. I'm like, you know what? After I got, you know, that from the fertility option, I'm like, that's a good thing because God gave me my first son. God will give me my, you know, daughter that I was because I, you know, in my head, I made a pact with God that you're going to let my husband, because my husband wanted a son so bad, God, you know, go ahead and let him have a son, you know, the first one, and then my daughter, which I wanted a girl, will come later. So, um, I said, okay. Oh, something happened to your, oh, something happened to your audio. Hello? It's not, you're not hearing me? Yeah, it just went funny for a second. So, okay, yeah. Okay. So, I was, I, I, I had a pack with God and say, okay, my husband wanted a son so badly. So I'm like, let him have, you know, the son, the first child that we're going to have, let him be a son, you know, and um, after that, I'll have my daughter right after. And I had, I like the idea of my daughter having an older brother anyway. Ooh. So I'm like, okay, so good. We, we work out. So every time we are talking, we're always talking, saying that, okay, we're going to have our daughter, you know, our daughter, we never say anything else. So, um, you know, time has gone by when, you know, we find out, we're like, hey, Lord, you know, I had my moment with God in and out. Sometimes I'm very hopeful, you know, Lord, you're going to do it. Some other times I'm like, Lord, why aren't you doing it? And so I had my moment in and out. And then one day um, I was not feeling good at all. And I'm like, uh-oh, oh, my Lord. So um, I went and took one of those home tests and I had, we have a bathroom, you know, downstairs close to the entrance door. My husband was at church. And so I say, okay, when he comes home, I'm going to surprise him. So I hide in the bathroom and I know he was outside. And then I jump in front of him as soon as he opened the door with the, you know, test thing in my hand. And he's like, get out of here, baby, stop playing. You're playing with me. You're playing with me. I'm like, nope. That. He's like, wow, really? I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, stop it. You're joking. I mean, he could not believe it. And, and I was later. Huh? 
How many years after the birth of your son? Well, that was seven years. Seven Seven years years later, after my son. My son was seven, and he could not believe it. He's like, like, oh my gosh, we are pregnant. We're finally going to have our daughters. I mean, it was a thing. It was a miracle to us anyway. So um, it was a double miracle because the sole fact of being pregnant is a miracle. And um, we were so elated. You know about you know being pregnant, and um, I remember it was in December 2016, and um, I went on about business. Didn't tell anybody about it until the year changed because everybody was celebrating, you know, end of the year or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And when the year started again, 2017 started. That's when we started telling okay, you know, we are pregnant and everybody's, you know, rejoicing because they knew, you know, how much we wanted um, mm-hmm. to have another child because I've never, I grew up in a big family. I told you my sibling was three and three. That's been six mm-hmm. in my um, six um, children. And my husband grew up in a quite a large family himself. And the idea of having Deuce, you know, being the only child was never, mm-hmm. was not good for us. And it's, uh, you know, watching him being just by himself was not, was not it for us. So we went on, you know, and um, the pregnancy was, you know, just pregnancy as usual um, until my uh, fifth month, I think, my fifth month um, checkup because go, um, when you are uh, pregnant and you are over 35, you are automatically at a high-risk pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So you just go to the gynecologist, go to a, what they call a perinatal doctor which is the doctor for the baby like that's the baby's doctor even before the baby's born and they check on the baby like every aspect like every month you go for them to check the baby thoroughly and make sure that everything is okay so on the on the i think it was the fourth one on the fourth visit you know the lady that was doing the sonogram you know she finished um doing the sonogram and she had that kind of awkward look or attitude. She's not looking at me in my eyes and she doesn't say anything because usually when she's doing it, we're chatting and stuff like that. But this time she was like, hmm. Every time she's like, hmm. Mm. And, um, and I'm like, oh, okay, is everything okay? She's like, oh, well, um, I, I'm just seeing something. Let me just verify and confirm or whatever she was using. I'm like, okay. Yeah, of course, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not. So after she was done, she hurried up out of the room and um, to get the doctor. So the doctor came and was, okay, um, pulled a chair and sat down. I'm like, uh-oh. And he's like, um, you know, um, you know, you know, whenever you're 35, you know, it's always a high-risk pregnancy and, you know, that's what we do here. Um, we, we are the advocate of the baby and, you know, blah, blah, blah and stuff. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, just come to the point, what's going on? And, um, and he's like, well, she's not developing as we would want her to. And um, no, he said the baby's not developing as, you know, we would want um, the baby to develop and stuff. And I'm like, what's, what does that mean? Mm. And um, he's like, well, um, the circumference of her head is um, kind of ahead of schedule. And 
I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah. Um, and her lambs are not on schedule. They are behind schedule. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, still, I don't, what, 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 what does that mean? I mean, layman, please give it to me in layman term. He's like, it's just that, you know, um, that's the first, you know, that we noticed that because, you know, they have charts, you know, where whatever the age of the baby is supposed to be at a certain, you know, scale and stuff like that. So um, she wasn't meeting, you know, the numbers. And, um, but he's like, but we're not going to, you know, um, along you. There is, you know, we've seen that happen before. And then after that, you know, it's just that the, um, every baby develops differently sometimes. And, you know, sometimes, you know, they can catch up, you know, and, and be where they need to be. And ever since then, it's just something shut down and going to the doctor become a chore instead of a joy. Because when I'm pregnant, usually going to the doctor is a is an event, it's a, it's a big thing because that's when I get to go see the baby. You know, it's like me and the baby having a date, you know, so we're gonna meet. But now it's just like, oh. So um, now we go and um, it's like we are staring at the screen, wanting to see, you know, um, a change, something different, you know, and and a miracle because we started praying and Lord, you know, um, what is happening? Because it's just like, people don't understand. Like they say every, I think if I'm not mistaken, every three seconds, a baby is born mm -hmm. and it's a natural occurrence for everybody. You know, it's, it's you, you, especially me, I got pregnant and I have a son, you know, 10 toes, 10 fingers and, you know, two eyes, ears in the right place, and, you know, what What goes wrong, you know, in having a child. You go, you have a child, you get pregnant, you have a child, and you come back with your child, and that's end of the story. But that day that you go and they tell you, uh-oh, mm. the day that you realize how huge of a miracle it is to procreate, to develop a child inside of you for, you know, everything. And because of the sinful nature of our world, there is quite a number of things that can go wrong. So long story short, um, after a lot of prayers, after a lot of communion taking, a lot of fasting, you know, um, my daughter was born. Her name is Amade Florel Wimberly. Um, and uh, she was born on the Thursday, um, and um, she went back to our father on a Saturday, that same Saturday. Wow. So she stayed with us for four days, and um, that was it. And that same Saturday, I got you know released from the hospital and went in pregnant, came back out empty-handed. My gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, I can't begin to imagine how devastating that must be. And not just for yourself, though, for your son who was looking forward to his little sister coming home. I mean, this boy was so excited when we told him that we were expecting 
you know, his little sister. Because like I told you, from the get-go, we know it was going to be a girl. Mm-hmm. And ever since I got pregnant, there was, you know, I guess, I don't know. Um, I have several different theories um, around, I mean, several different other ways of thinking, I would say, that I come to to get to because when you go through those kind of experience it's it's you you get to discover a lot of things about yourself about the people around you and um and about god mm-hmm. and so um ever since even before they gave me the diagnosis of her not developing properly i knew she was special um and i know every pregnant woman will say okay they know you know the moment they get pregnant you know something special is happening but it's not like that i cannot explain it in word but i know there was something an event you know that surround her that you know that our life will never be the same again because actually it's funny you mentioned deuce in there our son he's the one who announced her coming because he was the whole year of 2016 he kept telling me, mommy, you're going to have a child. Mommy, you're pregnant. Mommy, you're pregnant. And in, even in front of people. And sometimes people are like, oh, you're pregnant. Completely. I'm like, no, I'm not pregnant. He's saying that. He's just saying that. And on the month, you know, when I was going to find out for real that I was pregnant, he was playing with me, you know, and then I was laying, I was sitting on the couch. He was playing with me. He came and he hugged me and then he jumped right back and he's like, oh, you're pregnant. Just like that. And then as a seven-year-old, he went back about his business, you know, with playing and stuff, like nothing happened. You know, he was the one who announced it. But the whole year, 2016, I have a a friend of mine that was, we were working at the same place. And I kept telling her, I'm like, I don't know. I felt like this year is special. Like I'm being prepared for something huge. And she kept telling me that, oh, maybe God is going to, you know, elevate you or something. She kept saying and stuff. And then 2017 came with the birth. Amadi was born on August 22nd, 2017. And 2017 was a, I mean, 2017 on was an awful year, mm-hmm. an awful year. And it's just, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. And the only reason why I'm talking about this right now is because it's you, because you asked me. And I thank you. And I honestly... I thank you for that because I know that this can't be easy for you because in sharing it, you have to relive it. Exactly. Because as much as um, I, I, like I, I really love my daughter in the sense that I, I protect her memory. Mm-hmm. Like I don't discuss her with anybody else. I guess it's a part of me. It's still the me grieving. Like I feel like somebody has to be worth it for me to talk worth her like you have to be worthy of her for me to talk to you about her like i don't discuss her with just for the sake of discussing her or for the sake of getting empathy from people it's a i don't know um as and i was telling my husband when i was you know um thinking about your invitation to talk about that i was telling my husband it's funny how two opposite sentiments I'm feeling two opposite sentiment at the same time. Like as much as I want to talk about her because um, she would have been three years old now, um, we would have been getting ready to celebrate her birthday next month. And um, she would be 
all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Her name will be on report cards. Her name will be on, you know, books. You know, I will be buying her stuff and doing this and this and that. But then again, I, I want to talk about her. But then again, when people ask me to talk about her, I feel like you are infringing in my privacy type of thing. You know what I'm saying? I want to be talking about that, but then again, I don't want you to know about her because she's mine. You know what I'm saying? She's mine to hold, she's mine to keep. You know, so it's... Um... And I appreciate that. And honestly, I do not take it lightly at all, at all. And I am so grateful for your strength in being able to share that with me. And for the fact that you trust me with that I, I honestly I thank you I thank you and, and I and I can just imagine how you feel just like wanting to talk about something but still wanting to hold it close and dear because that's literally you're holding on to that and I honestly I I, I can't even begin to imagine what that journey has been for you and for your family and um, you're saying that she's special and she came for a reason and the only thing I can say you know and, and it's not, I don't want to sound cliche or anything like that but it's one of those things where you had her for that moment and even in the, the short four days you had her she changed your life oh yes she totally she turned our lives upside down literally I mean my husband doesn't you know as a man doesn't express, you know, um, the depth of his grief or the change that Amade brought into his life very often. But I know Amade changed our lives forever. Like, he had to be the one to tell my seven-year-old that Amade passed away. Because um, that was my first C-section. I had Amade by C-section because if I had her vaginally she would not have survived those four days so the trauma of going through the birth canal would have been too much for her so they had to take her you know um give her a chance and um and that was you know i i i was very much out of it for the first day i pretty much lost the day with her because i was very much out of it that was my that was the first time I had a surgery in my whole life. Never had stitches in my whole life anywhere, not even in my finger. So now I was cut in half and then sewn back together. So um, I lost the first day because I was out of it in the hospital and um, I was in excruciating pain because I didn't understand that when you had the C-section, you cannot use your core muscle to do anything. So when they invite me, when they when I had to go out of bed for the first time, I just rise up like I always do for the whole year of my life. And I pull all of those things and I'm like, I was screaming my head off. The whole nursing station came in to see what was happening. And I like the tears that was going out of my eyes, they were the size of my fingers because I mean, I had never felt pain in that degree in my life. Even when I was giving birth to Deuce, I, I didn't feel this kind of pain. Wow. And so because I, I got off the bed using the muscle that I've used all my life, my core muscle, my belly, my stomach muscle, which are not together. So um, that was excruciating. So that's what I went through the first day. And um, it wasn't pretty. So I couldn't see her for the first day. So it was 
horrible. But then again, um, Deuce has only had only one chance of seeing her sister. So because he, she was in the NICU and um, they don't usually let kids go in there, but because of the situation and the, you know, they made an exception for him and he saw her and thank God when he did see her, she turned around and looked at him. I mean, really look at him. And, um, and he was like, yay, mommy, my sister, she looked at me, she looked at me. And I'm hoping and praying that he will keep that moment with him forever. And um, I don't know, I don't pretend to know what happened in heaven, what is happening in heaven. Do people grow? Do they remain? Is Amade still a baby now? Does she grow? And is she three years old now or is she four days old now in heaven? I, I, I won't know that until I see her. Mm -hmm. um, but um the only thing that's holding me now and people, when they look at you, it has been three years and they're like, oh my gosh, you've gone such a long way. Now you are able to talk about that without crying. That's such a, you know, healing and stuff like that. And um, I let them have that because that makes them feel better. You know what I'm saying? And I was going to say that to you. I'm just like, I don't know if you'll ever get to the point where you won't be able to talk about that and not cry. I mean, I'm sitting here with my tissue, like trying hard, desperately not to, and I can go through that. Yeah, they don't, they don't understand. Like the absence of tears, it's like, you know, psychologically your brain gets used to a certain things because when you go through a, tra a trauma, the um, neural pathway in your brain change. People don't understand that. It's like when people say something change you, I mean, biologically, you are changed. Emotionally, you are changed, that's for sure. But biologically, you are biologically changed. The neural pathways of your brain, the connections of your brain have changed direction depending on the depth of the trauma you go through. So the fact that I, I am able to talk about her now and not shedding tears doesn't mean that I'm as healed as people want me to believe that I am as healed, but it's just because now my brain is used to the recalling of that story. And... Um, and there are a level of PTSD that when, when your, your, your brain is hiding information from you just so you can cope with the, with the situation. I don't know if I'm explaining that well for people to understand, but that does happen. There are certain details that I used to remember so vividly. It's not like I don't remember them anymore, but my brain is not allowing my body to go there, you know? Um, because I can, if I sit here and we had three, four hours, I could go there and tell you for every day that she was in the hospital, what happened and how the day happened. But I don't allow myself to go there anymore because I know the result of me going there. It's, you know, the depression that ensue, it, we're not going there anymore. That will be working my healing backwards instead of moving forward. So, And this is a coping mechanism as well, though, is a way to cope with and 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 deal with and not be able to and, and be able to kind of recall it in a way that doesn't devastate you and tear you apart again yeah and correct yeah so so and, and not only that i think sometimes what people are failing to realize is that just because you're not crying means nothing sometimes you kind of have to hold yourself together and you can only cry in front of the people that will allow you 
to be able to really feel those emotions of what you're feeling at that moment. That's great. And it's not everybody that you can do that with because you've got some people, they'll come to you and they'll talk to you, not with a real deep caring. Some people will come to you and they want you to talk about that because they want the 411 on the thing. They want to know the detail. They don't understand that those details a detail about the life of my daughter. They are not detail of a story. I'm not trending on Instagram. I'm not trending on whatever social media we have out there. This is not what this is about. It's about me talking about the deepest place that I can talk. And that's why I say earlier, sometimes I feel like you have to be worthy of her for me to talk to you about her because it's not, it's not a story, story that I'm telling you because we are out there sipping tea and we are just, you know, telling each other story. This is, no, this is not that. So, but you know, sometimes when you are uncomfortable and you are, when you are grieving, that makes other people uncomfortable and they want you to feel better. They are forcing you to feel better so they can feel better. Yeah. So they can be comfortable. So that's why sometimes when people come to me and say, oh my gosh, you have gone a long way in your healing. And I just smile and, and let them have it because that make them feel better. That doesn't make me feel better because I know exactly where I am in my healing. And if I'm to be honest, I am still angry. I am still devastated. And devastated is not even the word. That's because that's the biggest word in the English language I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, um, I am, you know, I'm very outraged, you know, about the whole thing that happened around, you know, the way the hospital handled her and the, the, you know, medical staff that was taking care of me that knew, you know, she was supposed to be born in a hospital that was more um, readily equipped to deal with the person that she was and all of those things. And the amount of guilt that you feel as a mom, that your body was not able to be a safe heaven for your child to grow up, you know, normal. I mean, can you imagine that? Well, you can't, but nobody can imagine the number of times and the, num the number of times that tape is playing in my head like was it something i ate right. put on my body put on my hair i even asked myself is it the years of perming my hair that did that to her mm. is it cream sunscreen that i did not apply enough you know mm. it the list goes on and it's endless the scenario keep on playing in your head over and over and over again like a maddening song in your head and it it doesn't stop you can distract yourself which is what i did you know um and until now i cannot tell you how many times i watch i don't know if you know that show frazier when i was in yeah. the middle of grieving for her you know intensely that's the only thing that i could do I don't know why, because I don't know if it's because Frazier is a psychologist in the show, but I don't know why that show actually soothed me a little bit. Wow. It's exactly. And him, you know, he's, he's, you know, the real person, Kelsey Grammer, I think his, yeah. name, his real name is, mm -hmm. he suffered the loss of his um, sister. She yeah. got, you know, raped and murdered. Yes. So I don't know if all of that connected together and stuff, but it soothed me. And even now, that show have an emotional connection with me and my daughter. We form a lot at the menage a trois type of thing that's going on between me, Frisian, and, and, and Ramade. Because every time I look at the show, I remember when I was there. This show, nothing else on TV. And I had loved several other shows, but this show, for some reason, 
soothe me. Mm -hmm. I will sit here on the couch in the dark and watch Frasier over and over and over from episode one to episode whatever they have. Watch it over and over and over and over. Wow. And it's, it's interesting that you say that um, coping mechanisms and, and, and what, um, what really was a bit of an escape, you know, I'm beginning to wonder if, was it really the show Frasier that you were connecting with or knowing that the man behind this, can, he, he can feel me. Probably. probably. So, you know, so I'm going to tell you too, it's after the death of Amade that I definitely changed direction. Like I'm not, I no longer want to do anything that has to do with finance. I really want to do it. I wanna, really want to be in psychology. So I, I really take, you know, take that route. I mean, I knew I wanted, I wanted to do something deep, um, something else. And that's something else. The way that I define it is that I wanted to connect with people on a deeper level mm-hmm. because um, what my daughter has taught me is that life is not being, it's not to be taken for granted. Right. You know what I'm saying? And of course that sounds cliche. Everybody know life is not to be taken for granted. Life is short, you know, tell people what you mean, you know, when you see them, because the last time you talk to them may just be the last time you talk to them and stuff. I know it sounds cliche. Mm-hmm. However, um, for me, you know, it was, it was like a, the realization of the cliche, you know what I'm saying? It's just because I had never suffered loss in my life before that, you know, my parents are still living, both of them, thank God. I did lose my grandparents, um, my grandparents on my mom's side that I knew because I never knew my grandparents on my dad's side, but my maternal grandparents, they, I lost them when I was like six. The, my granddad, I lost him when I was six. And then my grandma, I lost her when I was about 12 or 13. Mm. So I could not fully understand what death was because I, I can remember vividly each instances when my mom come to me and told me your granddad passed away and your grandmother passed away. My grandmother was my sister that told me, my oldest sister that told me that, um, you know, your grandma is no longer with us. And, and I remember my mom saying, you know, when she came back from the funeral, she used to say all the time, um, well, when she came back to see my grandmother from the hospital, she said, you know, grandma was asking about you because I was my grandma's favorite. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, so we'll get to go see her. And my mom looked at me like, is this child okay? You know what I'm saying? Because I said that and then I went about my business like, okay, we'll have, we have to go see her then. And I didn't understand that that was my mom's way of saying that my grandma just say goodbye to you. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, so when my dad came from work and my dad never take days off, my dad only have two weeks of day off at the end of the year, but he took a a week off, say, we're going to a funeral with your mom. I'm going to your um, grandma's funeral with your mom. And I'm like, what's a funeral? You know what I'm saying? But I was 12, you know, which expects you expect the person to be the child to be more than that. But now imagine me, my husband telling my seven year old son that that sister, we waited uh, pretty much his whole life because he was seven, his whole life to have the one time you had seen her in that NICU. It's done. That was it. That, that's all, you know, and I still have the picture from the hospital when he was, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't, first of all, when he, when he saw her the first time, 
he had a, you know, it was a shock for him because she wasn't born looking like him. She was born with those, you know, difficulties that she had. And um, he was shocked and he had to run out the NICU and dad followed him. And he was, he couldn't understand. He's like, why, why, why is she born this way? Why, why is she looking like that? You know, what is happening? And we had to explain to her, you know, she's going to have some challenges and she's, you know, and, you know, so, okay, do you want to go back and see her? So he said, yes, you know, he went and go back and see her. And then that's when he had his little moment with her and say, you know, she's looking at me. And, and he was really excited about that. But um, that was very short lived. And of course he had questions for us afterwards that we couldn't answer because I had questions for God myself because- I was about to say that as, a, as the parents, you got questions much less the seven year old. Yes, he had question. He has a lot of question and I had even more questions. Mm -hmm. and, so, and me, I am in my personality before my daughter, I was very dismissive. Like you do something, I'm very loyal, but very dismissive on the other end. You know, every personality trait have two spectrum. Like, and on the one end of the spectrum, I was very loyal, but on the other end of loyalty is being dismissive. Like the day that you show me that you betrayed me, I am so done with you that I don't even know what, what's your name. So um, that was my reaction to God because I was, you know, a Christian. That's my end of the being loyal thing. But the other end of the spectrum is that now you had done the way I was looking at it, that God has done betrayed me. You are dismissed. Okay. We're done. We, you are dismissed. I'm going to go in my corner and you find yourself a big old corner to put yourself. You just take the rest of the world. Pretty much. <laughs> Wherever I'm not. <laughs> oh, wow, that's that's and the thing, and it's and I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people think that just because you're a Christian and you go through stuff, because we've got that scripture, I think it's Romans eight twenty eight, and um, um, I can't even remember it now. It's gone right out of my head. But you know, these things and um, our present suffering is nothing. To, you know, that? yeah, eight nineteen, eight nineteen, Romans eight nineteen. Right, that's the one. And it's just like, you know, people look at that and they think, oh, well, as a Christian, and you can just pull on your faith, and your faith will get you through, and you can go. Whenever people are telling me that, I'm like, tell me about something that you went through where you had to put on your faith. Tell me about that. I'm listening. No, 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 absolutely. For real, for real. Because I, know, mm -hmm. I remember um, when I went through the hysterectomy, I went through a hysterectomy four months after being divorced. I got divorced December. 2016 I was having a hysterectomy April 2017 and I had I had a lot of questions for God I'm like hold on a second you know that I just wanted to be a you know get married be a wife and a mother and now divorce and hysterectomy like really like really? was pretty much a that was a diabolic year <laughs> yeah you might as well say yeah because if you think about it my I went through a divorce towards the end of 2016. So that's how I entered 2017. And then four months into 2017, I'm on an operating table having a divorce, a, a hysterectomy. And I'm just like, like, hold on, wait. It's funny how people, you know, sometimes when you talk about numbers, people, usually people in witchcraft, they pay attention to numbers, but us Christian, we have a book of the Bible called Numbers and we, 
pretend that they don't matter. They do matter. Mm -hmm. There is something between me and my husband with that number seven. Because when I met my husband, I was living in apartment seven. And it was seven years since I've been in the country where I met him. And we got married seven months after we've met. Our daughter was born in the year 2017. You know, it's just, so you know. Let's not, let's, let's not forget about my little man deuces now when your son was seven. My son was seven years old, you know, when she was conceived. It's just, it, it was, I don't know. It's, I mean, they, I think seven in the Bible mean uh, accomplishment or what is it again? It's completion, completion, completion. And eight supposed to be new beginning. And, but. And she was born in August, the eighth month. Hmm. Yes, she was born the eighth month, and she was born at 11, 11 a.m. Wow. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's a whole, I mean, that had opened our eyes in so many ways about, you know, people that you had hold dear that you think was going to be there for you when something, I mean, tell me something. What is the biggest thing besides your own death? What is the biggest thing that's going to happen to you when you have to bury a child mm. besides burying a child? If somebody cannot be there for you in that moment, mm. I mean, really? You never can be. You never can be. What's the use? You know what I'm saying? And people will think that, oh my gosh, this trauma that she went through left her bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm just it now understanding who you are. It, yeah. No, it, no I, I'm what people think it didn't actually... In, it didn't leave you bitter. It woke you up too. It, that's the word my husband just 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 used. That's the word my husband just used. You are awake now. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was because and and not just the burial of your child. If you look through your life and you see that, because I remember I wrote an article and it said something like, um, "Look who claps when you win. Pay attention." Pay attention. And so it's not just who claps when you win. Look at who's behaving a certain way when you're going through specific things in your life. Exactly. In, it's, in, it's in adversaries that you know what, who your true friends are. So. And sometimes not just in adversity. Because I'm going to tell you something. I remember when I was getting married, my ride or die. I'm thinking, this is my ride or die. Her mum calls me her other daughter. I call her my mum. We stayed at each other's homes and all the rest of it. When I told her I was getting married, the way she switched on me, she was supposed to be my, she was supposed to be my um, like maid of honour. She didn't even end up coming to my wedding. Wow. Didn't, didn't, there was no bride's dress shopping. There was no bridesmaid shopping. There was mm -hmm. none. And then, so when I did get my dress, and part of my expression of my language, this is what she said to me. So when my dress came and it was delivered, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, it's real. I'm getting married. I've got a wedding dress. Oh, my God. So I called her, and I said, my wedding dress has just arrived. And all she said to me is, bitch, how come do you got a wedding dress? I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just in adversity. Adversity. When, when in, in good times, people show you who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like, and you, when you're going through something in life and you see how the people that you thought really, really had you, how they behave, it's just like, oh, okay. 
Yeah, and the other side of that is that people that you thought they were acquaintances that you did not put in the category of friends, they are the ones who are coming through. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it's just amazing. And you get to see people's character because here's something that people don't understand. And, and I don't blame them when I'm saying that I don't blame them because I was an ignorant before I went through what I went through when it comes to, you know, being compassionate and being sensitive to what people are going through and stuff. So I do not blame them. I'm just, you know, saying they are, people um, are uncomfortable with you being, not being the jovial, normal self that you used to be. So their motive, some of them, their motive to make you feel better is so they can feel better themselves, so they can become comfortable again. You know, they don't have an interest in you. You know, um, they don't know what it means to, like, go through something with me. Mm -hmm. They think that I'm going to go see Warren's because her daughter passed away and I'm going to go try to make her feel better. And then I'm going to go home. Okay, here's a newsflash for you people. PSA, public service announcement. When you go see somebody who experienced the death of a loved one, Mm -hmm. do not go with the idea or with the intention of making them feel better unless you have the power of Jesus Christ. If you cannot resurrect the person and bring him or her with you, then you're not going to make that other person feel better. Especially so soon. Not, not at all. Like you come in to be with that person. Whatever they may happen to need in the moment, that's what you are here to do. Mm. If you cannot roll with that, Stay home and send a card. I'm serious. Stay home and send a card because the card will say, in the moment I was thinking about you and they will always have the card to remember that you didn't make a gesture when they were going through it. But if you come in person and you're not writing, you know, you're not doing what they need you to do, that's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth and that memory is going to be hard to erase. Whatever the person needs, because one one friend of mine asked me one time, she's like, I don't mean to poke you where it hurts, but I want to ask you, when you have somebody that go through what you went through, when you go see them, because we do get intimidated when we are around people that are grieving, and I understand that. She said, when we go see them, what, what should we do? I'm like, here's the thing. The first thing for you to decide is what type of friend are you? Mm. Are you a living room friend? Are you a dining room friend? Are you a kitchen friend? Are you a bedroom friend? Because depending on in what category you are, it's going to dictate your, your behavior while you are there. I'm like, if you are a kitchen friend, like you are allowed to go into the kitchen, open the refrigerator and stuff like that, just go inspect the kitchen. If it needs to be clean, go ahead and clean it. Mm. You don't need to ask permission. Don't go ask her if you can. Go ahead and clean it. Cook something. Put it on the stove and tell her she has something to eat whenever she feels like she want to have something to eat. Mm. That's all you can do, do it. If you can pick a broom and a map and map the house and make the house clean, go do that. If you are a living room friend where you are not allowed to venture into her kitchen, you know, without supervision, go sit and hold her hand and just don't be acting like you are at a funeral if she's Mm. not acting like that. Just follow her cues. 
your right. friends if they want to talk about the disease like talk about them if you know the disease and you want to talk about it talk laugh about it because we are always looking for opportunity to talk about the person that we lost because we don't mm. want to forget them it seems like um not talking about them gonna make us feel better like they never existed that's an insult to the person that's died I'm glad you said that. That's an insult to the person. Yeah, that's an insult. We don't want to forget them. We don't want to put them in the drawer and close the drawer and never open it up again. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. There are certain times we will talk. We would want to talk about them, laugh, remember how funny they were, how beautiful, what you know, how um, feisty they were, or something like that. Whatever it is, if that's what they want to do, go ahead and do that. And in the middle of doing that, she or he might happen to start crying. Mm. Because now in the middle of remembering and celebrating the person, now you remember that it's an absence. It's a yeah, void. It's a loss. They're gone. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. that you do that. If you are a bedroom friend, that is the ultimate responsibility. Go ahead and fix things. Bring her a cup of tea while she's in bed now. Chances are if she's deep in grieving, she's not even brushing her teeth, she's not combing her hair, she's not taking showers. I'm going to tell you just the way it is. Mm. Go ahead and make the tea. Bring her the tea into the bedroom. Encourage her to get out of the bed. Brush her teeth while you are there. Make her take a shower. You know, put her something comfortable. Get on the bed with her. You know, if there's TV in the bedroom, watch a movie if she feels like it. If she doesn't, you know, let her fall asleep in your arm or whatever mm-hmm. is needed. This is how you go comforting somebody that experienced loss that is grieving. If you're gonna go when the person is feeling a little bit up to the task and moving around and stuff and you come from the door as soon as you open the door oh my god oh jason no this is not always the answer this is not always what they need if they call you crying and they say can you please come over yeah you can from the door you can start hugging them and say baby i know Mm. i know that's what needed then because she called you crying. She called you and said, come over, let's mm. cry together. Mm. So, so I've seen it where I remember um, a few years ago now, um, somebody that I grew up with, her son was um, shot and killed. And it was a case of mistaken identity. He was in the, he, you know, he went, yeah, it was a case of mistaken identity. He could, good boy working and everything he was not into it he was never in any kind of trouble strictly a case of mistaken identity and I remember going to see her and a friend of mine that lived around the corner he had a food truck so I remember I said to him look there's going to be people in and out of the house just do a big tray of chicken and take it round there for me so he did that and then later on that evening I went and I remember this woman pulled up. I wanted to slap her seven ways. She pulls up, right? She gets out of the car. She's walking to the house. And she starts weeping and wailing and boo-hooing. And the person whose son was just murdered had to go and console this person to make this person feel better. And I told you, because most, and like I said, there was a, a lot, the majority of the people there know me from my work. In fact, they know my mum from before I was born, right? And I remember there's one person kind of holding my arm back. And I just wanted to go and snatch her up. No, seriously. I was, everything in me was trying to say, you know what, don't make a scene here because it's not going to help. But I seriously just wanted to go up to her, snatch her up and just say, what are you doing? You're supposed to, that's not helping. What is wrong with you? 
So, so you saying that just reminded me of that instance. And I'm just looking at this one, it's like, I'm thinking, actually, how selfish and self-centered is that? You just literally made this about you. Instead. And you would not believe how many people do that. And um, even at funerals, when they go to funerals, everybody started crying when they are rolling the casket out. Everybody's crying and weeping and yelling. But then again, 30 minutes later, after they've been weeping and yelling, they're going to a repast where right. now they are fighting for chicken wings and, and drink. Axtail. Um, what happened to the weeping and the wailing we were doing? like not even 10 minutes earlier no absolutely and, so, and so you see that it's, it's and for, so in some respect, respects you just see it's it's all like a superficial show and i must be i'm going to be honest with you i try hard not to cry at a funeral because i try, and there's sometimes it hasn't been able to happen because there's a couple times that i've been at a funeral and i've had to excuse myself go away do do the really rapid blinking thing like to draw, draw it back because as far as I'm concerned, I need to leave that to the, either the, the, the nearest and dearest so that they can, so that they don't feel that they then have to put their grief, press the pause button on their grief to come and make sure I'm okay. Because that's not what it's about. I have to press the pause button on my grief to make sure they are okay. And yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the amount of times when I've left a funeral and I'm literally boo-hooing my eyes out driving home because I didn't want to let them see me in that space. So I really felt that, okay, I'm really here for them during their time. Yeah, I agree. And I tell people now, like if you see me, well, we didn't have like a, funeral funeral type of thing for Amade because I didn't want that like we all gather inside of a church sitting in front of a casket and just sitting there staring at you know, I, I'm like this is not the idea that I this is not the way I wanted to celebrate my life so we did something at the you know um, at the beach and uh, we celebrated her like that so every year for her birthday I choose to celebrate her you know in different ways and stuff like that because her color was yellow and i didn't assign that to her even though it's my favorite color but i did not assign that to her it's just that when i went to the test the pregnancy test the first time um the lady that was doing the test she said i always give the mother something whenever i went to the test and the test come out positive i always give the um, mother something and um i gotta give that to them it's a it's not even a doctor's office it was a Catholic community outreach type of place. Okay. When, when I went for Deuce, um, when I went the first, when I was pregnant with my first son, Deuce, um, the lady gave me something. It was, I happened to be like a, just the little plastic spoon. It was a blue plastic spoon. So that was a confirmation that I was having a boy. And when on Amade, it was a long story how I come about to find their address again after so long. But I found the lady and she's did the test and the test came out positive. She's like, every time the test come out positive, I usually give the mother something to, you know, for the baby because we don't usually see the mothers again. And she gave me a little yellow frame. You know, she said, I'm sure that you're going to put her for, um, the first picture in there. I'm like, it's going to be a girl. Wow. And, um, and she did that and the frame was yellow. And um, 
I had this color is yellow, so I bought her in a little box and stuff like that, which I was able to put on her at the hospital. But anyways, um, I said that to say that every year when I choose to celebrate her, I always, every year, I buy a brand new yellow dress, you know, to wear on her birthday on August 22nd. And um, whatever I'm having to do, you know, um, it might be, you know, going to the beach. We have gone to the beach for the past two years. And um, you know, early in the morning because she's a you know, sunrise baby. And, um, but, you know, this year I'm going to do something different. So, mm. Um, it's it's quite something. Mm. But my husband wrote something in January 2019, and um, like I was saying earlier, that men don't create the same way as women. Mm-hmm. And the way he had chose when when the you know the whole thing happened in the month after her passing away, he chose to he he felt like he needed to he had to be strong for me because. Mm. I mean, I literally was in pieces. Mm. I mean, my body was together, but emotionally, I, I mean, I was emotionally in pieces. And the, he was afraid that I was going to hurt myself if he left him by myself, mm. you know, because every day he will come from work and I will be sitting in the dark. I mean, the whole house is dark. I don't want to do anything, just sitting in the dark and crying. And um he needed to be strong for me, you know, and he needed to be strong for Deuce because Deuce was, you know, Deuce was there, you know, it, it didn't end with Amade's life. So um, I wanted to be strong for Deuce. I didn't want him to understand that, you know, he's not enough because I lose Amade or he doesn't count or it doesn't matter, but I could not. I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the capacity. I, I could not. So he had to pick up the slack and he had to still go to work, you know, because we still have built, even though we, we lost the daughter, but we, the mortgage is still due. And so he gave everything he had to the work. He will not tell me, I mean, later on, he will tell me that he will be doing his work and be boohoo crying, you know, calling God, you know, what is happening? And, you know, am I going to lose my wife over this thing, you know, after I lose my daughter and stuff like that. But in January 2019, at 5.45 a.m., he wrote this that I'm going to read real quickly for you. He said, the Lord gave me closure on the death of Amade. He showed me that he wanted to test our hearts towards him. We kept saying we lost Amade, but the Lord says we lost nothing. We are mourning a body, but God say I reclaim the most important thing about Amade, her spirit. He wanted our love for him more than he wanted to give us a whole healthy child. I repented of praying selfishly. My wife and I had been telling everyone that Amade was an answered prayer. I felt embarrassed foolish and ashamed when we got the diagnosis and I think a small part of our prayers were selfish because of how we thought it would look to people who heard us making declarations of healing and restoration of our Amade. I think I was valuing the opinions of others more than what God desired, our heart and love for him. The Bible clearly tells us that because of Adam's sin, man's seed is corrupt hence babies being born with abnormalities or even dying. We place too much value in these earthly vessels that we are traveling in, which have no eternal weight or value. Our spirits and souls should be what's valued most because that's what will live somewhere 
after God reclaims what belongs to him, our, yes. Wow. Yes. So. Wow. And that is so, that is so true because, I, and, and I can identify with you've been praying and you've been declaring and you're prophesying over yourself because again, um, I did that about my marriage because I was praying for reconciliation and restoration and I was believing, I was standing on the word and then I was divorced. Do you know how long it took me to take off my wedding ring? Because I was so concerned about what people were going to think and say that I almost felt like I had to go through that journey by myself because the, you know, the devil will use shame and condemnation to clamp you down, to make you feel like, oh my God, the shame of it, and I can't share it, and I have to go through this, and God's not hearing me, and God's not answering me, God's punishing me. So I fully, and then when I went through the hysterectomy, it's the, again, praying for healing, but yet I'm on the operating table. So I fully, fully, I, I needed to realize that, yeah, it's just that, and, and not to sound cliche, but it's like, okay, Lord, everything has, there's a purpose and a reason for everything. And, and I've just had to accept that I'm not going to understand it all. And I'm not going to know why. Doesn't mean I'm not going to question. Let's not get that twisted. Correct. Let's not Correct. get that twisted at all. Doesn't Correct. mean I'm not going to question and still, and it doesn't mean I'm going to stop wondering and questioning or whatever. But once you get to a point, you have to look at it and say, you know something? There has to have been a purpose and a reason behind this. And just help me to trust you that you know what you're doing. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And that's one thing I have learned because my relationship with God has, you know, shifted so radically after that because, you know, you have the gospel telling you how good God is and whatever you decide, you know, whatever you declare in the name of Jesus, you shall get and stuff. Yes. And I'm like, Lord, okay, we're gonna, when I was coming out really seriously when I was coming out of the house because I had not been out of the house for quite a few months. And I'm like, okay, if I were to, if I am to come out there without harming myself, you know, and come out and live a life, let's get this one established. I may be mad at you, but there is no other way that I, there is no other place for me to go. It's like the disciple has told Jesus, where are we going? You have the, the, the word of life, you know? However, our relationship cannot remain the same. I'm like, now you have something of mine. You, I have the most precious seed that I can have in the ground, in your ground, on your ground now. So our relationship cannot remain the same. We're going to have to talk things over and be honestly with each other. And God say, okay, the Holy Spirit say, that's how you want it, bring it on. So I started asking God questions, you know, about, you know, did I receive the gospel wrong? Whatever happened to whatever you ask in my name, you shall receive. God said, yeah, that is in the Bible. But the other part that is in the Bible also that you all never mentioned after you say that one is that I am sovereign. Mm -hmm. I have the last word. 
It's like parents that ask kids, okay, where do you want to go for your birthday? Now, oh, um, I want to go to Canada. Uh, no, you can't. Where do you want to go for your birthday? You still can pick another one. You know what I'm saying? You still can pick another one. Oh, I want a pony. Uh, no, you're not going to have a pony, but you can still make a list of other things that you want. You know what I'm saying? I am sovereign. I have the last word at the end of the day. You know, so that changes things. You know what I'm saying? That changes your um, your way of I don't, it's not the way of you seeing the gospel because the gospel is the gospel. All those things were already in the Bible, but that, you know, that way we understand, let me put it this way, the way we understand the gospel, you know, that has changed for me. Now my relationship with God is a direct relationship. I'm like, I will do something and I'm like, mm, Lord, I really want to know what you think about this. And I'm actually pausing, waiting for you to tell me what you think about this. Is that something that I say? And then, oh, Lord, tell me. No, I am really waiting for you to tell me, you know, and I am expecting an answer. You know what I'm saying? I am expecting an answer. It's, it's I don't pray anymore. I have conversations with God. You know, I have conversation. He has his turn to speak. I have my turn to speak. I don't pray and get up and go about my business. Uh uh-uh. I said something, you say something back, then I'll reply to what you say. Then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a conversation because, yeah. you know, and the Holy Spirit say, well, you have to have the gut to take it as much as you ditch it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to tell you about yourself. You <laughs> were not compassionate before you lost your daughter. Yeah. Now you have learned compassion. You know, I mean, to the level or degree, you could, you know, see somebody that has somebody that lost a loved one. You're like, oh, okay, that's that. And then you move on. He's like, this is not who I called you to be. I call you to be able to relate to people like that. You need to be able to relate. You need to be able not sympathize with them, but empathize with them. Mm. And wow, that's, that's something though, because a lot of times we think because we're sympathizing with somebody, that's all we need. It's because we're doing that, oh, there, there, there. I'm so sorry. Feel better, okay? And then you're gone. Yeah. You have those words in your lack and loaded in your hostel. You know, somebody have, oh my gosh, this is so bad. And then you get in your car and you call your girlfriends. So where are we going for lunch? What are we doing today? You know, when somebody tells you something, you're like, oh, I'll be praying for you. And then the prayer never come. And not only that, it's not that the prayer never comes. It's like sometimes it's like, it's like thank you for your prayers, but um, I need something practical now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Practical. Exactly. Exactly. You can't just pray for people and just leave it there. You need to kind of follow it up with some practical action. Exactly. Now you have somebody that tells you, okay, you know, my husband is in the hospital. You're like, okay, where can I help? Mm. You, you need me to look after your children for you while you go back and forth. I can come and take the kids out so like that you don't have to worry about them. The kids can stay with me. The kids can, you know, I can bring you guys food and whatever. I can go to the house and somebody to give you a cleaning session or whatever it is, you know, be like you say, be practical because that's what needed. And I was upstairs, you know, boohoo crying, you know, and not wanting to leave anymore but I wanted somebody to come over and cook for my husband and my son. They have to eat. I'm not going to cook. I don't want to cook. I don't feel like cooking. You know, I can't cook before, you know, I cannot even come close to the stove because I might just stick my head in it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm serious. I'm laughing, but I'm serious. 
I mean, everything. I would look at a, a, a knife and ask myself, how painful would it be to just, you know, end it there? So um, I needed somebody to come and cook. Don't call me on the phone. Don't send me text messages telling me you are praying for me. Come over and clean the bottom floor for crying out loud and just leave me alone. You know what I'm saying? Bring some food. Bring some dinner for my family. Bring some soup or something. Yeah. Something. mm -mm. Because not only I had those mental, you know, um, black, but I had gone, just gone through a C-section. You know what I'm saying? So um, doctors are telling me, don't go up and down the stairs. I'm like, so you are condemning me to my bedroom? Mm. So it was quite, you know, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. People like, some people tell me, oh, I didn't want to come to your house because I didn't want people to come in and out. I'm like, do you believe that I did not receive that one single visit? Wait, what? That's a story for another time. Yeah, hold on, wait. Hold on, wait. Huh? Hold on, wait. I know that's a story for another time, but we're going to touch on it. And the reason that I say that because um, I didn't know you then. And I'm oh, not like that. You not like that. Like that. That, is true. that is true. I knew of you. But, uh, but it was like, in my mind, and I know, and you know something, if I was there, well, mom's going to hear this and she's going to be so mad because my mom is that person that she's like, what? She's, the first thing mommy's doing is she's in the kitchen, she's cooking up a storm, she's putting it in a bag and she's bringing it. And she, half the time, she won't even go in. She'll just, you open the door here and she's gone back in her car and gone, that's mom. So, but the fact of, you would think that both you and your husband work in the ministry at the church. I'm going to get my tea. Ministry and staff. That's very telling. That's like, and, and you know, you know, the one of the, that's actually heartbreaking to hear. Because it's not every single body. Because I don't, I've only, obviously before moving in the beginning of this year, when that happened, I'd only be going to that church for a year and a half. So I was still fairly new to that church, but considering I was still new, I know that everybody knew you and your husband, everybody. We came in when I was pregnant with my first son. That's heartbreaking. Like, talking about practical love. Wow. Just, I don't even, you know what, like you said, that's a, so we're not, we're going to, moving, moving, moving very soon. Yeah. So, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, I remember you said that um, one of the things that came out of your daughter passing was you realized life is short and that's what shifted you into becoming a psychologist. And I'm glad you touched on that. Because I remember many years ago, my first ever job, proper, proper job outside of school was in a bank. And I, I was there, I think I was there for, I'm trying to remember how long I was there. And um, there was a woman, she, had, she, was, she, had, she was working at the bank, but I never actually properly met her because she had 
miscarried a child. And it, it would appear that she was quite far in the pregnancy when she miscarried the child. And the path she took was literally put the entire world on pause. Because for the, for the two years I was at the bank, that woman never came back to work. And every time she did come into work, it was literally, you would think that it happened last week. And part of me wanted to say, can you please realize that life is still happening? Can you please realize that I don't think that your child, this is the purpose of you, for you to literally shut the, she literally shut the whole world out. And it was like, for the two years I was there, it's like life just didn't continue because of her, she wanted a child so badly that like she just, she just stopped. She just stopped. So, and a part of me wanted to say, you can't stop, you can't give up. Because I just wanted to say, I actually wanted to say to her, try again. Try again. And I'm not saying try again because it will take away from what happened. Try again because you're still alive, you're still breathing. Please, come back. You know, it's almost like if I could get a defibrillator and put on her. It's like, you've got to come back to life. But for her to try again, she will have to, like you say, she will have to come back to life. She will have to be healed or um, at least starting the road to recovery from that first trauma. But, and that's where um, a good support system comes in. Because if you don't have a support system, you know, because I have to say, um, my one of my sister-in-law, my uh, David's brother's wife, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. she was very instrumental in my recovery. And it's not like she, you know, she was, I lived in Fort Lauderdale then, and she lived all the way in Orlando. However, she had made it a point to make herself available mm. every time I need to talk. It doesn't matter what I need to talk about. It doesn't matter for how long. She had told her children, and she's a very busy lady. She had four kids. She's homeschooling all four of them. They are in different grades. You know, they were in different grades. Um, some of them were in high school, middle school, elementary, and stuff like that. She had quite a uh, um, things in her in her plate. But she made it, you know, a point to be available, to be there whenever. It doesn't matter. And when I'm telling you it doesn't matter, Allison, I'm not even lying. Mm. It can be in the middle of the night. It can be... Um, in the middle of the day when she's doing homeschooling, she just tell um, the, her children, you know what? Titi Warren's is priority right now. You know, whenever she needs something, whenever she calls me, I'm gonna answer the phone. And I apologize for disrupting you guys' day, you know, but, but she was very instrumental. And uh, a good support system is really, really important. It's really important. And if she's not, you know, that lady you're talking about at your job, if she doesn't have that, because let me tell you one thing. When I, the first day that I, the first time that I say, okay, I'm going to try to go back to church now. That was the first time I was coming out of the door. When I got into the car, I got outside and I see my neighbors passing, cars going in and stuff. 
I'm like, what is happening? What, what is happening? I thought the world was shut down because my daughter passed away and I'm grieving. Yeah. I'm like, how is it that the world is going about their business mm -hmm. and knowing it's like, don't they know what I'm going through? Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is what I was saying. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm like, don't they know what I am going through? How dare them mm -hmm. to go about the rest of their day, to go about the rest of their life. Like nothing had happened. You know what I'm saying? So for this lady, I totally understand how she feels, you know? And especially, like I say, if she didn't have those people that come, because like I say, when you have those kind of events, that's when you realize who's on your side, who's for you and you, who's against you. Mm -hmm. So if this lady, she didn't have that support to see, you know, she can, grow, she can go on with her life and say, I hate you all. Because I gone through this and none of y'all, especially the coworkers, the people that worked with her at the bank did not show the support in the way that she needed them to. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to talk to none of y'all. None of y'all. Do not talk to me. Don't even look at me. You know what I'm saying? So it, grief happened, you know, in so many different ways. Grief, you know, people grieve so many, so much differently. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a case by case basis. Yeah, because with, with her, she, she did have the support network, she had the support of her husband, she had the support of work because they, every once in a while they say, just come in, talk to us and we'll, and she, said, and she, she was seeing a therapist, but she literally, she, she said she had that, but she just, and I just wanted to say, but you can't stop living, you, you have to, you have to, yeah. and I'm not saying that because it didn't happen. And I'm not saying that because you got to pretend and live like it didn't happen. It did. We know it did. And we, we're here for you. But come back. Come, you know, come back. And it was two years. She didn't come back to work. She would only come in like every three months. But just to check in. But she didn't. She did not come back to work. And I put up the bank to keep her to... Um, guarantee her to have her job still. Yeah, that would happen now. This was like in the, this was in that late eighties. That you know oh, that's yeah. now it's like they give you three days of grievance and yeah. then and then this is like um so you're not coming back into work because we got so yeah but yeah and it, and it was just, and I looked at that and I just thought to myself wow like is she is she ever going to be able to come back? As much as I wanted to shake her, like, live, live, please live. Yeah, yeah. And I bet sometimes my husband felt that way, you know, to tell me, you know, I want to see you get out of the bed and I want to see you, you know, do something, go back to being the, who you were, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But it just, you know, the people that are closest to you, they are walking a very thin line. Mm -hmm love you so much that they want you to be better you know so much that they are actually hurrying you along your your recovery yeah. and that would have the effect of you resenting them even after you were healed now interesting you know, hate the fact that they did not let you take your time to do what you needed to do now you come and set them and you can stand them for that you know for that's interesting that's it. Well, in that case, I'm glad I didn't say anything to her because I mean, at the time I was only 18, 
So I had no, I had no understanding. But yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's interesting though that you will. Yeah, because the thin line to find the balance of, you know, not being an enabler because somebody that has people that are unable them because let me tell you something there's a part of the grief that feels good mm-hmm. because you are sad you feel like you are close to the person that you have lost and could it be the attention you're getting as well though some people do some people like the attention me i did because not like it i did not like it. i thought she liked the attention she was getting from it some people do some people um thrive on that actually mm. the attention they love the attention of getting but me um and my husband knows me like and sometimes he will have to intercept my cell phone because he knows i do not like the attention i do not like the people constantly asking me how i'm doing because mm. i'm constantly have to explain my emotions and my feeling and i don't want to do that it's exhausting for you as well though to have to go through it over and over again for every person exactly that. exactly but sometimes you can you can find that you are wallowing, you know, um, because when you are sad, you feel close to the to the um, loved one that you have lost. But then again, the your support system need to be able to balance that, you know, that thin line. When are we not gonna let her wallow, and when are we not rushing her out of her process? You know what I'm saying? So they have to be really keen as reading the cues of when you're ready to move on and not force you to do to do things like for example I tell people I would never go to any baby shower anymore. I don't I don't want to do that because Amadi had two baby showers. My family said um throw her one and my coworkers threw her one. So I'm like I am so sick of baby shower. I'm so done. I don't want to do that. I don't want to I didn't want to hug or hold any ch- child or children. No, I'm not doing that. Um um when people come and talk to me about oh um somebody just gave birth, I'm like good for her. <laughs> and then I move on. <laughs> and I move on. So it was, you know, it, it's people don't understand. There are certain things that you are, and sometimes they say it, and then right after they say it, they realize what they said, but they cannot take it back. They're like, oh my gosh, open mouth, insert foot, you know, and and it's just that. And, and when my friend told me that one time, she said, you know, people get intimidated around you. So excuse them, make allowance for them to say stupid things. They will say dumb things because intimidated. Some of them don't know what they to say, you know, and they, sometimes you hear something in your mind. You say, okay, when I see Warren, this is how I'm going to approach her. And then the person sees you and then they just, that they didn't plan. She said, they are intimidated. And that actually was such a window for me on the other side. I'm like, that is true. I do have to make allowance for people because I remember now how intimidated I used to be around people who are grieving. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Because you are so much into your own feelings of grievance and anger because you know the seven stages of grievance. There's the, you know, the denial phase, the anger phase, and then you go into um, the bargaining phase, you know, and then you go to acceptance or however the other ones are, the acceptance being the last one. But depending on what stage of the grief you are on, you know, when people come to you, you act a certain way. Yeah, because you are in the wrong day, in the wrong stage. If you are in denial, somebody come to you and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for your loss. You're like, what loss? The person is like, um, didn't you just, no? Um, okay, well, yeah, okay, so what are we having for lunch? <laughs> you know? 
But if you are in the angry stage, it's like the person come, I'm so sorry for your life. She's like, child, get out of my face. <laughs> that whole thing. You know, you are capable of doing mm. and saying anything, yeah. Yes. And people don't people will not get you. As a matter of fact, I lost friendship like that, you know. And somebody, I don't remember that somebody that was very good friend with me, um, or at least I thought we were, and um something happened and she come to me and tell me something, and I literally told her that I'm like, get out of my face. And because of that, she felt so bad that she had never talked to me again. But we had reconnected a week ago. Oh, wow. She just lost her mother. Oh. So now she was calling me to tell me she understand how angry I felt. Yeah. And that she should, and really she shouldn't have taken it personally to not speak to you. Exactly. Because when you, it's a choice that you make. When you come around people that are grieving for that moment, it's not about you. Mm. If you are somebody that's always caught up in your feelings, don't come because your feelings going to get hurt. Yeah, right? Don't come around. Send a card. I'm telling you that. Send a card <laughs> because they're going to get hurt. I'm going to use that. Send a card. Yes, because the person go through so many things. At the, even when we are kind of healed, sometimes you think about the person, you know, the, lo- the, lost, um, the lost loved one. And you feel like you want to lash out at somebody because you are mad about the absence of the person. You know, you, and when you're mad, somebody got to be there to either blame or somebody's head need to wall. You know what I'm saying? And if you, if you around, it's just going to be you, you know, that's right. It's going to be you. Wow. That's, that's, that's so key. And that's so interesting that the, 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 just the dynamics of everything, and all the parts and pieces and so on. And it's just, wow, wow. Because one of the things I want to touch on, because it's after your daughter, did you you ever think that that's it, I'm not going to have any more children? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That was my first thing. That was, that was the first way that my anger was manifesting is that I'm done. I am not going through that again. I mean, I am not going through that again. We are done. We are done having children, especially that what happened um, to Amade was not able to be explained medically. They call it all kinds of stuff. You know, a doctor call it, it's a fluke. You know, it's a medical fluke. Um, they say it's one in 50,000 that happened in one in 50,000. So that means 50,000, um, 50, no, 49,999 babies were born. And Amade just happened to be the one. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, okay, no. They are saying, oh, go to a genet- genetic, you know, um, specialist and stuff. I'm like, we are done. It's easier to just be done. Let, let's just be yeah. done. Because yeah. And I can imagine, obviously that's acceptable, and un- not acceptable, that's understandable. As in the immediate right after. So you can just imagine, you know, that time right after. That's understandable to say, listen, Especially as you said earlier, you were asking yourself all these questions about, could I have done something differently? Did I do something? So especially like you're feeling that guilt. So for the, just the thoughts. So that's exactly. totally understandable. So, so let me ask you, so 
you were just like, that's it, I'm done, not doing this, thanks, but no thanks. So what happened? <laughs> did that change for you? Did that change? That never changed. That never changed. That not that have not changed. Um, but I woke up one morning feeling like I have been hit by a train. And whenever I wake up like that, I know exactly what time it is. I'm like, uh-oh. Mm-mm. I'm like, no, Lord. I, it was, I think, August? No, maybe September. It was in the month of September. And I'm like, no, mm -mm. No, no, no. I'm like, Lord, listen. I'm like, we have that conversation. And I said, no, no. So I got up, went to work. While I'm driving to work, tears are going down my face. I'm like, no, 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 no. So I'm thinking, should I tell my husband? Should I not? Should I tell? I'm like, uh, no. Ooh. So I spent a whole month not telling him. But I am tired, not feeling well, out of breath, and I don't want to wake up in the morning because in our family, the way our uh, marriage is constructed, we each have our you know, um, responsibilities towards deuce. So um, he was like, so I keep asking him to pick up my slack for me. Can you take deuce to school this morning? Can you take him to school? Because I take him to school. He take him, you know, bring him back from school. Right. So I keep asking him in the morning, can you take this to school? I cannot do this morning. Can you do it again? And he keep on asking, are you okay? Are we okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. A so, month, Warren, yeah. a month. A month. And that could not because, you know, I'm, my responsibilities are active around the house because those are the things that I like to do because I like, you know, washing dishes. I like doing the laundry and stuff like that. He does things that are outside the house, like taking care of my car and stuff like that. So now he had to come in and fill in for me because... I'm not feeling well. I'm like, I need to go. I have a headache. I need to go lay down. So now dishes are piling up and he has to do his part and my part now. It's like, oh, you okay? So I'm thinking, how long am I going to be able to keep that up? So right. after I call him, I'm like, I need to talk to you about something. Ooh. And he's like, okay. But he's not thinking about that at all. I mean, that is not in his mind. And we went and locked ourselves in the bedroom. And I'm like, I'm pregnant. He's like, nope, nope, nope. He's like, nope, 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 no, nope. nah, uh-uh. <laughs> it's just like he asks his permission. Can we go? He's like, nope, I refuse to believe that. He's like, no. Are you serious? He's like, you're not serious. No. I'm like, yeah. by that time, we both are in each other's arms, crying, boo-hoo crying. And we're like, what are we going to do? So now we started praying. And because I was, when I was going to surgery with Amade, I was terrified because I have never laid on an operation table before. I didn't even know what an operation room looked like. And I was laying there. I mean, I was shaking so much that they had to ask people to hold me down for the doctor not to cut me the wrong way. No way. With Amade. So now, and he witnessed that because he was in the operating room. So now he's thinking about all of these things. Later on, he'll tell me that he, that's what he was thinking about. He's like, no, you're not going through that again. We're not going through that again. So needless to tell you that these doctor's appointments 
they were like boring, excruciating. Every time we have to go, it's like we, we just, we go and we are waiting for the shoe to drop. Like, what are we going to say now? You know, I could never have enough sonogram. Like every time they do a sonogram, I'm like, do it again. I want to make sure. Do you wow. see all the bones? Do you see all the days? Give me the numbers because by now I become a number expert. Give me the numbers. I want to know how is that going. And every time they like, you know, it's, it's everything is fine. I mean, he's meeting the numbers. He's on schedule. Is this, is that, and blah, blah. And still, on the day that he was supposed to be born, of course, after I had a C-section, I have to have another one because it was less than two years, mm. you know. So when I was having the C-section, I told the whole medical staff that was around me what had happened in the first section. I'm like, I mean, the staff was super, super nice. Oh, that's good. Super nice. I, I mean, I wish just for the staff, I wish I could have another um, child just so I can go to that hospital again. Because that was my first time at that hospital. Holy Cross of Fort Lauderdale. Whoop, whoop for you guys. My Trinity Rod, you guys are awesome. So we had that. And um, here is the reconciliation. Hi, Derek. Here he is, Derek Layton Wimberly. That's the one that come and defy the eyes. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Oh, I miss you. It's like he knows they are talking about him. I know, right? A whole conversation about you. Three, five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, he came as, you know, I mean, his coming was people were like when they see me, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. And, but like that's gonna can, undo what you've been through because now that you had another baby, that's it. By magic, it's all. It's all. Yeah, done, that's right? what they think. But he came in and do um, and did what God wanted him to do for us and for you know for his sister. Mm. So, I mean, there are stories that I can tell you, but people will think that I'm crazy or I'm making those things up because I'm a mother that has lost a daughter, but it's not. It's really, there are stories that I, the thing, things that I can see in him or things that he had communicated to me. Because one time I was looking at him, he was so much younger. Now he's already a year old. Um, already? My gosh. Yeah. Well, he, he just he had a baby shower the other day. I know. I know. Um, and one time he came in, I was looking at him. He was probably maybe six, seven months. And I was playing with him on the couch. And I look at him and I say, you've met your sister, haven't you? Did she give you a message for me? And I kept telling him that. And I kept asking him. And I kept trying to see his face because he's moving around and stuff. And I'm looking at it in his eyes. I'm like, what has she told you for me? Mm. And you are the second person that I'm telling that to. The first person I told that was my husband. You are the only person outside of my family that I'm saying that to. And he stopped playing for a moment. And he came in looking at me in my eyes. And he did like that.
Yep. I asked him and right there and then he converted me. God knows it's all I can say. of our lives. Yeah, yeah, for real, because I'm telling you, it's just, it's always, I think there's just always going to be so many questions. There's a song that says there's more questions than answers. And it's literally like, okay, Lord, you know, one of those things, okay, Lord, I surrender. I can't keep trying to figure it out. You have to tell me or just give me the grace to get through. Yeah, I talk about that every time. I'm like, um, you know that song, I Can't Imagine? Definitely. Yeah, when you listen to the lyrics, he's saying that he cannot, he cannot even picture what he will do when he actually gets to meet Jesus. Would I cry? Would I be speechless in amazement? Would I drop on my knees and start worshiping you? Would I, you know, and I tell God, um, when my, eye, well, I believe that I will not go anywhere until the rapture. I'm like, but when I go over there and I reach destination, I don't know where destination is it. Like people talk about seven heaven and third heaven and whatnot, wherever it is, when we land. Yes. I'm like, you better be standing there with my daughter. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I believe that will happen for you. Mm -hmm. I fully, yeah. fully believe that. So, so where do you go from here? What happens now? Because you've got a beautiful baby boy. You have, well, you've got two beautiful baby boys. I'm not going to leave out my deuces. That's, like, That's right. Loving, loving, loving. And you have, and you have your daughter. I'm not going to say had, you have. That's correct. That's correct. We have. speak of her in the present tense as well. We don't speak of her in the past tense. She's in every um, family photo shoot that we do. We have a teddy bear that represents her that I dress. I buy dress for her, for the teddy bear and everything. Call me cuckoo. That's my way of coping. So um, where do I go from there? I mean, now it's time for us to start raising them. Um, I'm hoping that spiritually Derek will always know of her mm -hmm. um Ducey had a chance to meet her in this side of heaven mm -hmm. so that's wonderful so now it's you know time to raise the boys in her memory you know always keep her you know part of the family mm -hmm. and um my husband and I we are really done now and <laughs> you know I was gonna ask you that right so I was just like so um now we are really done now and have taken some measures about being done <laughs> and you know what it's funny that you should say that that's what i meant to say to you earlier considering what that doctor said to you you had three children about face covered in hair and that's hair. right that's right and my, my body not knowing that i'm a female that's <laughs> But you've had three children. You just want to, sometimes you want to go back to them and say, um, you don't know anything, bye. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But now it's time for us to raise them. And um, hopefully with God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding, we'll do that, you know, um, gracefully watching them. If the rapture does not happen yet, watching them walk down the aisle and 
forming and getting their own family. Oh. Jesus is to come back soon. Um, but <laughs> but um, it's, um, you know, people say all the time, life is not a destination, it's a journey. Absolutely. And we understand now, my family and I, we understand what that means. Mm. All of these experiences, like people ask me, if you were to, um, if you had the power to raise Amade, would you? Of course I would. Um, um, isn't it selfish to have wanted her to live, although she had some, you know, challenges and stuff? It might have been, yeah, it might be um, selfish of me because I want her so bad. But, but of the you know, first of all, I think it's a, you know, that first question, I think is a bit of a stupid question. Why would you not want her to be here and raise her? I mean, and that, exactly. it's, like, it's like, if there was a category of stupid questions, it would like be right, right up there, <laughs> firstly. And secondly, when they're saying, wouldn't it have been selfish of, for you to have wanted her to live? I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you wouldn't have wanted, you wouldn't have wanted her to live in any state, any way other than being a healthy child that's not feeling any pain. Exactly. So, so when they're asking that, it's just like, I don't think you would have wanted her to have lived with a disability. You would have wanted her to live on a healthy child. Correct, correct, correct. I, okay. I think it goes back to people just don't know what to say. Exactly. I wound up seeing her, you know, running around, pinching yeah. the baby and doing all of those things that three-year-olds do. Yeah, and um, being annoyed and an annoying little sister to her big brother. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, exactly. For David to be fighting with the two of them, you know, to leave his room. Right. <laughs> it's like, Mom, Dad, let's to give it back. Exactly. And the two of them to be fighting over, you know, one toy, you know, so... Right. When they've got a whole room full. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All of a sudden, that toy is the golden toy. Yeah. But, um, but all of these experiences make me who I am today. And um, the level of compassion and understanding and the way that my personality has, has changed from there, or at hence, hence my personality, Willie, or, and the, the new take on life that I have, the, my new perspective is priceless. You know, um, I would rather have that new perspective going through another route, but that's the route that God had made me gone through. And like you have said before, you know, um, I will always have questions and there are certain, now I know that there are certain questions that it's okay for me to have them, although I'm not going to have the answer on this side of heaven, mm. but I have those questions and I'm hopefully when you go through death, you don't forget the questions. You, as a matter of fact, your brain gets enhanced so you can ask the question before you go to live as a spiritual being. Or maybe your understanding just become clearer as you are in heaven. I don't know how that works. The Bible never expand on it, but we're not gonna waste our time speculating on it either. But I am better for it, you know. And that's when people see me telling my stories and I don't have tears, is because I say my relationship with her now is that if she was around and every time I mention her name and she see me crying. She, that would perplex her. You know, yeah. why are you crying every time you mention my name? So that's mm. on now. When I talk about her, I 
celebrate knowing her. You know what I'm saying? So I start, you know, um, talking about the blessing that she is to me. She, you know, um, to the, who I am today. So. And I'm so thankful that you have been able to draw from that. And she's always going to be with you, in you, and your voice. Yeah. And when people see me and I'm wearing yellow, it's not by coincidence. Yes. And because I, I know you've got your yellow badge and I've seen you with the big yellow flower. Beautiful, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Oh, wow. So, Warren, thank you for the strength and the courage to be able to so openly have shared your journey with us. You come into America and your journey of the, the devastating loss and how you, you and your family are rebuilding. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are. We have become like um, we have a new normal now. Um, we didn't go. We didn't come out of that experience and say we're gonna continue to do life as usual because there's a new usual for us now. Um, Amade's birthday is, you know, um, it's a halt. Like everybody halts what they are doing, and it's it's a must. We all, you know, celebrate her birthday, and and Amade's name is, you know, is in the house. You know, like it's not something that we're trying to avoid, or we don't say, you know, her picture is in display on my dresser in my bedroom, and she's and, and a whole part of the family. Mm -hmm. She is and beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. I love you. I miss you guys. I know. We have to talk about you being all the way over there. <laughs> yeah, so we will speak soon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so, so very much. You are quite welcome. Thank you. Bye, man. Thank you for spending time with us. We're already looking forward to the next episode of This is Conversations with Allison J. The journey to here. Until next time, honor, respect, and blessings to you all. If you want to connect, visit allisonj.net. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-J-A-Y-E.net. Allison with one L, as she is the one and only.